Back on the Poly Walnuts podcast, baby. <laughs> Was that recording? <laughs> yeah, you didn't like the... Uh, nobody seems to like the P-Dub name. I like it because I made it stand for Poly Walnuts, what it was supposed to stand for, not this uh, this winning acronym that everyone talks about. Winning acronym? Isn't that dub? Take a dub? Take a W? Oh, I didn't even know. No, it was uh, my initials, PW. Oh, okay. And then I had a roommate years ago when I was like 19 or 20, and uh, and he was like, PW, what's up? Okay. And then it became P-Dub. That's where it came from. Okay, okay. So anytime I've done anything like artistic, like if I made a painting or I used to do some music recording stuff, like mess around with some EDM or whatever, like just anything artistic, um, I'd always named it P-Dub. I like it because I can call it the Polly Walnuts podcast. So well, I kind of like the Polly Walnuts podcast name, Yeah, but I don't know if I could seriously call this. It's not serious. Polly Walnuts. Uh, it's not serious? No, it's... It's just a name. It's true. Anyone listening, do you guys want a name change from P-Dub to Polly Walnuts? <laughs> do it, for sure. <laughs> In all seriousness, yeah. let's take a vote. Thumbs up for uh, keeping P-Dub or a thumbs up for uh, Polly Walnuts. There's some other name options out there, too. But Okay. Bro, I'm glad you could be here. Dude, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be out here, man. I love Texas, and uh, I'm excited to go shooting and do the podcast and stuff. So yeah, we got the camp and shoot today. Yeah, we're going camping tonight, and then uh, taking the people shooting tomorrow. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's gonna be sweet. Yeah, do you uh, did you do any training uh, training of people when you were in the army? Um, not officially. But it's like a constant process, right? You get new guys in, you train them. Or you're the new guy who comes in, you're being trained. So it's not um, like you don't have to be an instructor to train people, you know? Sure. After, you know, four years in Ranger Regiment, um, I, I was, you know, the one in charge of training the people who came into my team. And so I've, I've done quite a bit of training, yeah. Yeah, I noticed when we were in Ukraine... Mm -hmm. And, um, pull up, John, pull up this picture from in the Adam folder. Um, scroll down. It's Adam sitting on the couch. Oh no, it's at the top there. Oh, is it at the top? Yeah. Uh, there it is. <laughs> sure. This thing. <laughs> I don't know why this picture cracks me up so much, <laughs> but it's just like this warlord yeah. sitting with his my, old gun. <laughs> my crappy little FNC rifle and, uh. And what is it? A shoebox of uh, shoe our box new team layout, pizza yeah. box or something? Yeah, I think it's a shoebox. Oh, shoebox. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But what I what I really appreciated because we didn't know each other at all, really. Yeah. At that point, we had known each other maybe a week, and um, and you stepped right into this role where you were trying to help the guys that were there learn, uh, be, become more cohesive so that we could get unified on the tactics yeah, and like how we were going to handle certain situations. And you just stepped right in. No one was telling you to do that. And so I saw right away that you had that teaching spirit of just wanting to make sure the guys are well-trained and that we could all be, you know, on the same page. Um, yeah, you know, and, and I'm not always like that. I'm not always uh, willing and ready to just hop in and, and teach people like that. Um, but I saw a definite deficiency and a need 
Um, so the team organization prior to this meeting was set up like it was a like an SF ODA. So like, you know, the team sergeant and the medic and the, you know, whatever. I was an SF. I don't know their whole setup. Um, but I know direct action and I know ground combat. And that is not uh, the the optimal setup. And also, I don't think we had people that were uh, specialized enough to fill that role. So I, I kind of had to uh, step in there and just and say, listen, we're we're not that. We are this. We are the infantry. Like we we are a country's strength and war to turn in peace. Like full on, no no specialties, no cool guy stuff. Like we're just fighting, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because that first week. And when you gave me your notes, it was really cool to read your viewpoint on it, that that whole first week was basically a selection process in itself. Yeah. And just by being present in that location, we hadn't even done anything yet. We Mm -hmm. hadn't gone on any ops. Nothing had happened. They were just moving us from the far west of uh, Ukraine over into Kiev to get us staged to go do stuff. And just that one week process alone was... Yeah, pretty, pretty chaotic. It, it was enough to get most people to leave of their own accord, uh, to get most people to quit. And I, I read a good, or I listened to a good book uh, this past week. They called it Battlefield Friction. So it's like um, the the issues on the battlefield before you're even fighting, right? So the the hardest part of getting to the, or of uh of getting to, to, you know, meet the enemy on the field of battle is just getting there, right? Finding the enemy's location and getting to that location in a timely manner. Um, fighting the enemy, that's the fun part, right? That's that's what's easy. That's what everyone's there for. Um, but it's not easy to get to that point. And so I think, you know, the Ukrainians uh, and their... You know, it's early war, so they don't have these administrative systems in place and them just kind of jerking our chain all around, you know, left and right and up and down and whatever. Right. If if those guys were there for battle, that those things didn't mean anything. Right. The administrative jerking around because we were like my goal was to get on the ground and take the fight to the enemy. Right. To the Russian soldiers. I don't know what what their goal was, but it certainly wasn't to fight the enemy because they didn't stick it out. Um, and and that was a good selection process. It worked. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know that it was even intentional. Mm-hmm. I don't think No, it wasn't were... intentional at all. No. Yeah, if we think about it, like going back to um, the early days, and I covered this in two episodes ago when I was talking about self-narrating my experience of going to Ukraine. We talked about President Zelensky talking about the formation and it, uh, really the invitation of anyone out there, if you have experience, please come help us fight. I think that was February 27th or 8th. Yeah. Um, yep. And that was basically the formation of the International Legion. What people don't know is that, yes, they had documentation. We're going to form an International Legion. He went, uh, President Zelensky goes on the news and says, we're inviting anyone to come over. That was it. There was no official documentation. I've talked to the Ukrainians um at length about this 
that there was no true formation of a legion in terms of like all the legal proceedings and the paperwork and all of that stuff to stand up a new branch of the military that didn't exist. So Mm -hmm. when we showed up essentially day one, uh, there's, they're just getting all of their act together. They're just figuring out how to form a new branch while the plane is already flying. So they're trying to put wings on the plane while it's already in the air. They're trying to put an engine on the front. They're trying to do all this stuff while the plane's already flying. And, Everyone was really pissed off about that. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just that, that battlefield friction, right? Getting to the fight. And uh, they were like, well, in the American military, it's like this or it's like that. This this isn't the American military. It's not. It's not a 200-year-old, 250-year-old military. It's, it's not that, right? It's uh, about eight years old, nine years old. It, it doesn't have those systems in place. Not to mention, it's entirely across the globe. It's Eastern Europe, right? The culture is not the same. The people aren't the same. Their experiences aren't the same. They don't think the same. And, and here, here we are saying, we're we're gonna form uh, a special forces ODA and do this our way, which didn't work out. Uh, our way simply just couldn't uh, coexist with the Ukrainian way. Everyone left. Everyone quit and left. So it was, it was uh, I think it was me, you, Mickey, and Sean and Dags left after that whole administrative uh, week of, you know, just being jerked around. Well, everyone other than us. Yeah. You mean, yeah. Yeah, everyone other than us got out of there. Yeah, there was some, we don't have to get into the whole shenanigans at the at the hotel, but that was, uh, that was also a pruning process, too, where, yeah. where, there was some disrespect to the place that they had put us in, I think, mm-hmm. because it was actually people's homes. Some of those were people's homes. Yeah. And and so the Ukrainians were like, hey, man, like, we invited you here to come help us. We didn't ask you to come and, like, sabotage our people's homes. That's kind of, that's not cool. And that was their, their vibe about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we, we don't want that. And then so then the commander... Um, We'll leave his name out, but the commander of the Legion was like, hey, screw that. These guys are out of here. And then, but I think he didn't actually really care. He was just like pissed off that people are like, he has more things to worry about. He has to worry about the capital of his country being invaded. He doesn't care if people are, um, not sabotage, but um, Disrespect, disrespecting, yeah. uh, vandalizing. Yeah, he didn't, yeah. he didn't have time to deal with vandalism. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, get him out of here. And so then, uh, remember that giant uh, Polish guy? Sasha, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He shows up like he's he's the boss or something, and that was a whole situation in itself. But he basically was like, "No, if you guys want to stay, you can stay." And um, but then the but then you saw these attitudes from these Mm -hmm. from these people that were already seemingly stressed out and battle fatigued and we hadn't even done anything yeah. yet and they were yeah. like screw this man they want to they want to disrespect us we're here to help and all that stuff it's like it's the wrong attitude to have man exactly like, i don't even want to work with you guys anymore anyway because yeah you're mad that they're upset that you vandalize their stuff that's not how life mm. works yeah and to be fair like while what what they considered vandalism we considered like an operational uh positive right we needed a whiteboard. We needed supplies and stuff. And uh, and then we broke the door down to get in and get those supplies because we, we didn't have the context, right, of 
yes, Kiev is being invaded, but also we still live here and this is this is still our home, right? We didn't have that context. And so once we gain that context, it was, it was very easy to put into perspective, okay, the operational necessity is out on the front line. Here in Kiev, we, we still want to keep a sense of like normalcy and like our, our homeland being here. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was a good piece of perspective to get from the Ukrainians uh, after that incident. And the, also the fact that all the people who left, they couldn't see that. They couldn't see like that this was still their home and that the Ukrainians were not disrespecting them. They still wanted them there to fight. Yeah. But they, they what they wanted was a free pass to do anything and, and all the equipment to do it with. And they they showed that they weren't the soldiers who were capable of handling that kind of responsibility. Yeah, you definitely saw the reactions, um, the maturity level of certain people yeah. in that in that context. And yeah. like I said, that's what's I, I keep coming back to. It's like we hadn't done anything yet. Yeah. And and this all of this stuff was going down. I can't imagine and for any Ukrainians listening, I just I can't imagine all of you that were working for the Legion having to deal with us because Americans can be super arrogant, um, especially when interacting with people from other countries. And we have this attitude that like everything you have isn't good enough and our stuff is always better than you. And I know that we have that attitude and yeah. it's, it's a terrible attitude to have. And anyone that's well-traveled in the world won't have that attitude, but a lot of Americans are not well-traveled and you can say, Oh, I was in the military and I did all these deployments, but you didn't immerse yourself in the culture. Mm-hmm. You left the fob and came back yeah. and you've always only been around Americans. There's yeah. a different thing when you go as a civilian and like hang out in huts for a few weeks and get on the train and have to do stuff, travel as a civilian. There's a different vibe that you encounter. Exactly. And it's not just Americans either. It was all the foreigners in the foreign legion. Right. Um, and it was, it was like, yeah, we're, we're soldiers. We're here to fight for you. Like, you know, I'm the soldier of fortune. I'm going to save the battle for Kiev. And, a good soldier knows that he is the least of of the the strategic and the and the tactical uh, turning point of this thing. Yeah, there's you know there's so much more that goes into it, right? A soldier isn't going to be able to stop the artillery from from pounding, uh, you know, the the convoys of supplies that are trying to get in, or he's he's not going to stop the tank from shelling the front line position most of the time, right? And uh, and these people thought they could just come in and save everyone. And then as soon as it, it started to not go their way, it was game over. Full implosion. Yeah. No resilience whatsoever. Just like <laughs> <laughs> like running around the hotel screaming, getting drunk. It was ridiculous. What was... Yeah, that's a story too. Yeah. What What was your... Because I do want to talk about what happens before the war. But once we... Because you, you were originally with someone else, and then you joined us. Yeah. What was yeah. your impression showing up at um, at that at that base where we were located, your impression of the people, the vibe? Um, it, it was like a very, like, spooky kind of vibe. Uh, like Halloween spooky? Yeah, like Halloween spooky, dude. Because okay. you, like, rolling downstairs. The first people I see were, were Jesse and Kevin. Uh, and so Jesse, I'm like, that dude's a ranger. Like, 
Oh, really? He, I had him pinned from the second I saw him. He no had, kidding. He had a beanie halfway on his head, dude, sunglasses on. We have a, a piece of cold weather gear called a 3 Alpha, and it's supposed to be like an underlayer for your jacket, but everyone just wears it. He's wearing the 3 Alpha, dude. He's got sweatpants on, like curly hair sticking out from underneath the beanie. I was like, that that's a Ranger. Yeah. And uh, he was like, was anyone here special operations? So I, I went over to him. I was like, hey, man, I was in uh, 1st Ranger Battalion. What? Where were you? He goes, oh, I was a dog handler in 375. And then we started talking. He kind of vetted me a little bit. And it was it was cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some butt sniffing going on. Yeah. In that environment. Yeah. Like, what are you? What's going on? What's your thing? Like, yeah, do you it, actually know what you're talking about? or? And, and everyone's, what? you know, everyone's trying to be all, like, like no one wants to give away what they are yeah initially but I, you know i was like screw it like i'm here to fight if, if someone asks me I'll, I'll tell them i was a ranger i won't you know i won't blow my service out of proportion i never lied about anything i did in service um but in an environment like that where there's no accountability people just lie about everything yeah yeah, I think I was thinking about this while we were getting ready for this episode. Um, why did people do that? Why was there this mis- this blatant misrepresentation of people's backgrounds? And I think it's people didn't want to miss out on something. And so if there's something, an opportunity to do something, and um, someone could go on maybe an op or something and then they're like what's your background I'm like oh you weren't special operations you're not going on the op and that yeah. that was kind of i could feel that tension it's like you know when you'd go to that lobby of the hotel and you could just feel the energy man like yeah. some rooms are pretty neutral and that room was that lobby was it was dark dark, <laughs> it was dark down there <laughs> it's a dark lobby man and physically yeah. the lighting in there they blacked out all the windows and so it was already dark yeah. but it was a depressing dark toxic pit of yeah. despair yeah and i hated being in that lobby i never wanted to yeah, go down there I, I never went down there unless i was down there to eat yeah and the other thing too i wouldn't take the dang elevators because i was scared of getting hit by a rocket so I'd, i would go up the stairs every time was it like 13 floors or something i don't remember what yeah i don't know what floor we were on yeah i think it was like 12 or 13 yeah but i was like no elevators i'm not getting stuck in here if we get hit by a rocket i'm Taking the stairs. Well, that one base had got hit. Yavariv, yeah, they blew up Yavariv. And and the rumor mill going around was that, oh, it was because of the social media stuff. People were posting, idiots were posting pictures of our location. Yeah. And so we're like, well, they hit that place, and someone's taking pictures for sure of where we're at now, and so it's just a matter of time. Yeah. But we didn't know. I found out later, because you know me, I like to ask a lot of questions, and um, I'm a talky guy, but... yeah. Um, I found out that that where we were was under the the missile umbrella, the the missile barrier. So we were in the capital area with all the government buildings, and so everyone was like, "We got to get out of this place. This is the next place to get hit." That was the toxic thing in the in the lobby. Mm-hmm. But then finding out later that that was probably one of the safest buildings to be in that we could have been. Maybe I'm still skeptical. I'm not a hundred percent on board with the fact that like we were under this missile barrier that was impenetrable. Um, Oh, I didn't say impenetrable, but there was, there was some anti-air anti-missile mechanisms in place there more than anywhere else that we were at. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's definitely 
possible, but I, I think we were, it, in my mind, what I made peace with is that we were totally exposed. If they hit us with a rocket, we all would have died. That's yeah. that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So getting, you showed up to Ukraine when? So I showed up actually at the beginning of February. So like February, I think 4th or 5th it was my first night in country. From the U.S.? Yeah, from the U.S. Okay. Um, I flew straight into Kiev Borshpil Airport. None of my bags made it, unfortunately. Just me and my carry-on. Um, but yeah, I, I moved there. So like, I brought all my stuff. And I, I had an Airbnb for three months. And then I was going to buy a place. And uh, the reason I moved there is because I was going to school. I was working. I was, you know, very involved in the community and my church, and I was just so busy. I had no time to myself at all. And I was like, why am I, I'm like 20, I guess I was 25, but it was from like 22 to 25, I was doing all this. And I was like, why am I putting myself through this grind for, for what, for like a better job? Like, I don't even care about the job that I'm working anyways, you know? And uh, for more money, I'm like, I have enough money. So I was like, I'm just going to go somewhere uh, where it's it's similar. It's got like a, a European culture and somewhere that's, you know, cheap and uh, adventurous and, you know, full of culture and stuff. So I, I decided on Ukraine in November of 2021 when I saw an article that Russia was stacking up on the border, I was like, that seems like uh, something might happen there. And that's it, a place where I think I can assist, you know, given my, my background in Ranger Regiment and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was there early February for three weeks. I went to school every day learning Ukrainian. Uh, I went to school online back at Charleston Southern. Uh, just, you know, did my classwork and stuff. And then, uh, I also was meeting people around Kiev. So I was, you know, I, I made a couple American friends. Uh, I hooked up with the Georgian Legion, Mamuka, like Machiavelli. I think the commander's name was, I, I hooked up with them and, uh, and so I was helping train civilians and the the Sunday before the war started, I was training this group of civilians, which is where I met Travis. Uh, I was training this group of civilians, and this beautiful Ukrainian girl was there. And uh, I was just watching her like interact with people. She spoke perfect English. And I was like, this is crazy. And I said to myself, and no lie, you can ask anyone at the Georgian Legion at the time. The next day I came in there and I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And uh, yeah, that was the first time I, I ever met my wife. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I admire your commitment to the cause. Um, because someone in their early 20s isn't going to say, oh yeah, um, same stuff that you said. Oh, don't, I'm not so worried about the job or the advancement or the career or the money. Uh, I just want to have some good life experiences and go 
travel to some cool places and have that adventure you talked about. Yeah. But to others, the adventure is just having a bunch of fun. And in your mind, you see Russians stacking up on the border for war, and your idea of the adventure is to go defend a culture and a people that is foreign to you mm-hmm. and to prepare for that. Yeah. So you started learning Ukrainian, you started getting your feet on the ground and started meeting people. And um, that's admirable, man. I mean, that's that's very cool. There's not a lot of dudes out there that would have that mindset to be prepared ahead of time and to go be mm. in place so that when the thing pops off, you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, well, cool. you know, what, what you did was admirable too and, and the rest of the legionnaires who were there, um, you know, answering that that call, you know, leaving your life in America, which is admittedly, though busy, nice and cushy and easy and, you know, peaceful and loving and great. Um, and to go out there, you know, into that, into that darkness and that, uh, that void where, uh, you kind of have to accept that you will likely die at some point if you keep it up. Um, so yeah, I mean, thank you for coming out there as well. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, <laughs> dude. <laughs> it's um no, it's nice to hear that um from from someone I was with, you know. Um Yeah. Turning back wasn't an option for me. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm sure you felt the same way like the attrition was tough to watch because you're like, "Oh, okay, this dude that I'm kind of like befriending and starting to hang out with all of a sudden he's dropping off and these other dudes are dropping off. You're like, damn man, like what, am I in the wrong spot? Like I'm, you start to kind of question like, okay, I mean, mean, they, do they know something I don't? Am I missing something? And I just know at the time in my mind, I'm like, if I go back and we didn't do anything, what a waste of my retirement savings that I've spent to get here. What a waste of all the effort and time that the Ukrainians have given me up to this point. Mm-hmm. What a waste, man. And I can't, yeah. I can't be, I can't walk back with that feeling that I, I, w- I was a waste or that I wasted people's time and energy. Like, um, the cause is more important than that. So uh, I didn't have a lot of those issues with, uh, with like trusting people and then them leaving or like getting to know someone and them leaving. Um, I was there before with, with the Georgian Legion and and they were a means to an end, right? So I wanted to help the Ukrainian situation, and they were training civilians. So I, I threw my lot in with them, uh, helped train civilians, and they had a plan for when the war broke out of who they would contact, how they would get weapons, what they would do. And so since they had that plan, I, I stuck with them, right? And that's also where I met uh, Greg, you know, our Greg is our our good friend, uh, medic, Ukrainian citizen, also Canadian citizen. Uh, speaks perfect uh, Russian and Ukrainian and English. Amazing, amazing dude, right? I met him at the Georgian Legion. He was buying all kinds of medical supplies to distribute to people he knew and uh, and to teach civilians about medicine. He was there at the training as well. And, uh, and yeah, you know, that's where I met all these people. So on the first day of the war, when it went down, uh, everyone showed up 
at a, at a certain place where we later showed up to be in process in the Foreign Legion in Kiev. Um, a an SUV pulled up, like super old, like maybe Jeep uh, Jeep Cherokee type vehicle, something like that, pulled up with a trunk full of literally Cold War storage Soviet era AK forty sevens smothered in cosmoline and uh and we grab these weapons out dude one kid he charges the ak to clear it and he goes to release the charging handle and you expect it to like slam into battery you know and the gun just goes like and just like the the (laughs) bolt stops like halfway forward it's just so much packing grease on the dang things so they they show up with a, a trunk full of ak's and some you know, Cold War storage, AK ammunition. And uh, so as fast as I can, I'm jab- jamming my magazines full and uh, and wiping my gun down with like a spare T-shirt I had in my rucksack. Jeez. Greg shows up late, though. He doesn't even get issued an AK. And uh, and we go over to Hosmel Airfield. And Mamuka's like, yeah, we need machine guns, we need rockets, we need grenades, we need more ammunition, we need more weapons. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is a good idea. And the the war has started at this point. It's the first day of the war, so everyone's like kind of on edge, but no one knows what to expect. We hear the sound, dude, of a jet just ripping through the sky right over us, dude. And I, for a second, I was like, yeah, it's just a jet. <laughs> and then it, it was like it was like just the switch flip dude veins pure ice massive explosion in the background maybe like three four hundred meters away and i'm like like eyes go wide i scream incoming mamuka just screams run <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone just takes off dude and uh and that's when i was like like that was uh when my when my my character was like fully called into question like am i going to stay here and fight or is this it for me and that's that's when uh i i started making deci- decisions and got in this mindset where i was i was going to leave right in in those couple hours of just laying on the floor of a bombed out warehouse just getting blown up by helicopters and planes listening to infantry close in in our position while I have a barely functioning AK-47 with two magazines and 20 other dudes with no support, I I was 100% certain I was going to die. And I said, screw this, I'm not going to just die. And I started changing out of my uniform into a pair of civilian clothes I had. I grabbed my passport and $2,000. I was going to just run out of there. And uh, before I did that, though, I I just had one thing in my head. I was like, "Let, let me just make the situation that I'm in right now a little bit better. And so I, I go to Mamuka. It's me, Mamuka, and some other, the student Manuel, uh, all in this bombed out building no one can coordinate we can't get out of the building because we jumped through a window full of broken glass we can't get out without climbing on the glass shards um and i'm like muka what do you what do you need he goes i need to communicate with everyone so i'm like 
all right, I'm going to kick this door down. And so from the inside of this building, I'm kicking this door out and I kicked, dude, I kicked while the helicopters were shooting. I kicked while the planes were blowing us up and I just kicked and kicked and kicked maybe 200 times. Dude, I kicked this door off its hinges. It was a derelict building. So it was like boarded up on the outside. Like it was like a reinforced door kicking from the inside. And, uh, I kicked the hinges off, dude, the, the handle wouldn't budge. And, uh, and then Mamuka was able to coordinate. Once we kicked that those hinges off, a bunch of people started to stream into the building. Because what we did to get into the building was like jump off this platform through a window down like six feet. Through a window full of broken glass. Like it was really treacherous. Um, but we kicked this door off and people start streaming into the building. And Greg sees me and he sees me grabbing my passport and my $2,000. <laughs> and he he's like, hey man get ready to fight. Like it's the first day of the war, get ready to, to, to defend Ukraine. And I looked at him and I grabbed him by the shoulders and I was like, Greg, we're going to die. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, yeah, like puppy dog eyes. And he's like, he's like, no, no, we're not. It's, it's okay. And he made me just like reevaluate the situation for a second and, and like assess what was happening. So in my mind, prior to that, it was, we're being targeted by, by planes and helicopters um, close air support and there's small arms fire that's approaching our position that's maybe now only you know a kilometer or two away and I what what Greg says I'm like how is he how is his mind so okay with with what's happening right now because I am certain I'm gonna die so I take a second to reassess our actual situation and and what I deem the danger level to be and and what I think we can get out of. And I come to the same conclusion. It's that we are still going to die, but there's this individual who I'm barely friends with. I barely know him, Greg, who is willing to do that for his country when he could go back to Canada and just live a, a nice, peaceful life. And I said, well, if Greg's willing to do that with no military experience, no military background, just because it's his country, what would that make me being a, a special operations soldier for four years with two deployments in Afghanistan? That makes me a coward. It makes me, you know, it brings shame upon the Ranger Regiment. And it, it brings shame to my family as well, like the, the man that my dad raised me to be. And if there's there's people like that willing to defend their country, then then I'll stand next to them and I'll, I'll try and help. That's when I made my choice. It's an amazing thought process that you went through in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, about four hours, dude. Yeah, I didn't know that full story, and mm -hmm. um, it just speaks so highly of who Greg was as a person. Yeah. And he had no rifle at that time either. No rifle, no weapon at all. So the dude is in the fight with no gun, yep. just there to save lives yeah. and be there to support his country. That, to me, is the essence and the spirit of, of Ukraine, mm -hmm. the Ukrainian people, is, yeah. is Greg, yeah, who he was as a person. And what he did for our unit, 
when he joined us because mm-hmm. you joined about a month before he did because he was still yeah um, and we can get into that about the separation but um mm-hmm. he he was with some other dudes for about a month and then he came and joined us after we were um after we came back from Zappo I think yeah after the Zappo trip um but having him on board with us was massive for just morale just the the spirit that it put in all of us to have mm-hmm. him there. Yeah. Um, so you have dudes that are the best trigger pullers. You have dudes that are the best tacticians. You have guys that are the best at all these different things, right? Obviously, Greg was a very skilled um, medic. Mm-hmm. But I think because there wasn't always a medical thing to do other than make sure everyone's kits were good and make sure there was always a flow of medical supplies going on, which he was always doing, and he was always loaning um, the services of his truck out because we were short on vehicles. So yeah. he was always helping with transportation of equipment and things. Um, and he was doing aid and humanitarian stuff outside of our unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was always, because he was in my team, and he was always asking me, hey, can I go drive yeah. over here? I'm going to get these supplies for these guys, and I'm picking them up and dropping them off. I'm like, oh, who's that for? He's like, oh, it's this other unit, and they need me to go pick it up. I'm like, Sure, man, go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, he was working outside of our unit as well as working for our unit. So mm-hmm. obviously he's with us for ops and stuff, but when we're back at the house, he's still finding work. Yeah. And that, to me, you talk about people that were and were not special operations, like that to me, he in- embodied what like an operator should be. It's like yeah. always finding work, always maintaining positivity, always finding what the next best thing is. And in the fight, he helped turn you around on yeah. your mindset. Like an amazing guy. It, yeah. Truly. Uh, one, one of the best human beings I've ever met in my entire life. True Patriot. Um, yeah. Just, you know, one of those people who you meet in the, the room just lights up. Exactly. Like it's just a blast to be around him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He always said, um, Hey oh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was his greeting in yeah. in text or in uh, in person. Yeah. Hey oh. It was his Canadian thing, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. And and no matter like a lot of the Ukrainians they didn't like him because he'd been naturalized in Canada and they were like, "Oh, you know, you you don't have to live here. You can just go back to your home and and all that stuff." Um but he, it didn't bother him. Like Ukraine was his country, man. Yeah, and in Maidan in 2014 too, the the Bear Coop, uh, the Ukrainian secret police, you know, Russian backed secret police, picked him up and and beat him to within an inch of his life. He barely survived, like cracked his skull and everything. And he was he went through that in 2014, and then he was back out there for more, you know, in 2022. Yeah, I can't imagine what his parents were feeling. Uh, yeah that yeah just there's so many ukrainians like that fighting for their country and mm-hmm. so many parents that are they just want their kid to be safe yeah and but they understand it, it's a tough situation to be in and i think that's mm-hmm. what makes the ukrainian people so hardy and so resilient yeah. is that they want the best for their children just like anyone else but they understand like what kind of sacrifice is required to fight for freedom and independence mm-hmm. um and I think, this is my opinion, 
But I, I think that's some of what we've lost in the U.S. is we, we have the comforts of being where we're at and having the country that we have, and I'm so grateful that we have it. Yeah. But with that comfort comes complacency and comes the, the lack of understanding of what it takes to have true resilience. Mm-hmm. And not just Greg, but all of the Ukrainians, I, I admire so much that they are who they are as a people. And, yeah. And the influence yeah. that they made on me was, I know you've got a couple of things that you learned, but one of the things I learned is that we, from our NATO American training, can bring a lot of organizational structure to the ops, can bring a lot of tactical knowledge, can bring a lot of structure in terms of like, okay, this is the op they want us to run. And they're like, go ahead and do it. And it's like, well, let's yeah. let's think about it. Like, what is our medical plan if something happens? What how are we getting inserted? What are we what's our exfil strategy? Like let's let's talk through some of this so that we all understand. Do we have radios? What channel are we on? Like let's let's go through the procedures at least at the basic level just yeah. so we understand how many days are we going for um and at the very beginning they would say no questions get in the truck and go and it's like yeah. dude do i need a jacket like what are we what's the deal here so i think that that's the value we brought um is to structure some of those ops and we got pretty organized there at the end yeah yeah in the end for sure maybe maybe a little too much from the Ukrainians' point of view, they mm-hmm. wanted us to just get out there and, and get in the fight. Yeah. So we, maybe we overanalyzed some things, but I, I know we brought structure and value because we started building our own intel packages and things like that and gathering information that they didn't even have and mm-hmm. putting together. So I don't want to dwell on that, but that's yeah. the value I think we brought. The things that the Ukrainians brought, um, for those listening, we obviously were hybrid units where we had Ukrainian foreign counterparts all kind of blended together. Yeah. Um, so what the Ukrainians brought was just that fighting spirit was, dude, you don't have close air support. You don't have artillery. You don't have yeah. all the cool kit. You don't have, I like your t-shirt courage over kit. Yeah. Um, because you don't have all the stuff, man, just shut up and get in the fight. Yeah. And, and that, that's what I learned, you know, as well. Like, uh, that, that's the difference between an infantryman. Right, and a, a quote-unquote special operator. Um, and that that's one of the reasons I, I don't like saying I was in special operations. I was an infantryman first, right? That That's the, the thing that Rangers have that really no other special operations unit has. We operate just as an infantry unit. We can operate as low as the platoon or the squad or the team even in some ranger units and we can operate up to as many as the full regiment which that's a scalable a scalable package that no other special operations unit has they don't train to work all the navy seals on all the seal teams they don't train to work together and do one mission together right that's something that rangers do train to do to to put boots on the ground and be an infantry unit and you know as cliche as it sounds, lead the way, right? Yeah. Just be a good infantryman, which encompasses not having the best of the best equipment, even though Rangers have great equipment, right? In Ukraine, I had my AK with two magazines, and I looked up at a a hind 
that was vectoring on me. <laughs> and I just looked at it and I flipped the AK off, off safe to fire and I looked at it more and I was like, yeah, it's, it's not worth it. I don't want to make him shoot at me if he's not going to already. Um, but yeah, like it, it's the willingness to get out there, right? It's it's when I went over to Ukraine with no plan besides, you know, help and learn in, in early February. And, and what happens when the war starts? Well, I don't know. I'll wait for someone to call me and, and tell me where to go to get my weapon. Well, what if there's no cell service? Well, then I'll run to the, to the locate, like, just do it. Just get out there, be courageous. Yeah. Um, like as much as the plan can help, the plan can also hinder, right? When, when there is no, like, what's our plan for medical support? Don't get shot. You know, yeah, for real. There is no extract. There is, there's no medic on the ground. There's no hospital, and we have no way to pick you up. So, good luck, and, and like get out there and take the fight to the enemy. Um, or, or what's your comms plan? We don't have comms. Like we're, we'll go to the frontline units and we'll try and tell them you're out there. Hopefully, they they pass it on to their relief. Yeah, you know when you come back. But but that's that. You just gotta to get out there and you have to kill the enemy. Um. And that's what they were doing. That's what they taught us, and that's what they were good at. And they were good at holding the line, too. Uh, they would stay in those positions. You know, the whole first two months of the war when they were assaulting Kiev, month and a half of the war, uh, those dudes were on the line nonstop. They never got rotated back. Yeah. Well, there was no one to rotate them. Exactly. Right? That was it. They were spread yeah. so thin. Like, that was it. There is no one else. There's yeah. no relief coming. Like, this is it. Yep. And, and that's why the, the Foreign Legion... That's where we were most important in the early war is we brought some knowledge and some experience that maybe those frontline soldiers didn't have. And what, what they lacked in knowledge and experience, they made up for it in courage, right, and patriotism. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people would say, right, oh, they're sending us on suicide missions. No. They were using the soldiers who had the experience to do the missions that the people without experience couldn't do. They were asking us to clear the houses that were full of Russians. They were asking us to go into the Russian infested city and do mounted or uh, to do urban operations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I never had an issue with the stuff in her pen. Never. I never, um, I liked working in her pen. Yeah, that was great. Um, that sounds kind of weird to say out loud, but no, it was, it was good. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know if that came across, but I, I, it was, um, and I, I mentioned this in one of my, in my couple episodes ago, but it was a very clearly defined boundary line too. It was very weird to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I know if you if if you've studied warfare, like front lines are kind of zigzaggy, right? Yeah. They just naturally occur wherever. But it was just that University Street all the way yeah. down. Yeah. And um, but working in that space, I liked that, um, because in a way it was simple. I mean, mm-hmm. house to house, we can talk about percentages and all. I don't care about that. I'm just, I just care. It's like we knew any dude that wasn't us anywhere there in that town because all the civilians had pretty much left. Mm-hmm. Civilians were there. They were in their houses, and it's old people. So you know the difference when you have you're looking through your. Well, we didn't have optics then, but <laughs> you're, yeah, you're looking yeah. down your sights and you're like, oh, there's <laughs> an 80 year old guy. Well, like, okay, that's obviously not a combatant, but. Yeah. Um, so anyone other than us was a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And so it made it pretty, pretty straightforward uh, in some ways. Yeah. In, in other ways, not so much. Um, I know my, my second mission in Irpin, 
we so my first mission was nothing it was it was going to the to the release point <laughs> getting smashed by artillery and then running away that was my first mission uh my second mission though was like a a three-day long debacle that that had most of the stuff we did in in your pin where we set up those recon positions along uh universitesca street that was it like cat squirrel and like elephant or something yeah well i know there was cat and squirrel for yeah, sure yeah i don't know if there was an elephant or not but whatever they were was your first the first one was that the one where we had the rockets was that the same op no okay. no uh what was the what, what was the one where you had the rockets the one you said you were in you took you were telling me earlier before we started recording yeah that we was... were running from the rockets you said you were in them was that yeah. the one yeah yeah can yeah. we pull this up john yeah this is good for people to listen to and watch it's the black video in this folder um is that it no, that's not it yeah oh, that's yeah, it th- yeah it is okay all right raise the volume on that so people listening can hear it or pause real fast let me let me set this up so my team had just finished our op. It was our first time in Erpin, and we were walking our way out of there. There was a staging point where Ukrainians were basically sleeping. So I guess Ukrainian infantry, we didn't know who they were, but we were just uh, our uh, Ukrasov, Ukrainian special operations guy, was our guide into the town because we didn't know where anything was. And so he got he guided us through to wherever stuff was so we knew where to work. And then on our way out of the op, we went back to that staging point where the Ukrainians were at. And we were just down our gear, drink some water, just hang out. And then we're going to walk back to uh, all the way back to the truck. So as we're doing that, we're talking, we hear explosions in the distance and they're gradually getting closer to us. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know like, hey, they're walking this stuff into us. You know, if there's consistent explosions in the distance and they stay in the distance, hey, whatever. But as they get closer and closer, you're like, uh, maybe we should get out of here. And so that's what's going on. Uh, so go ahead and hit that play. Just raise the volume a bit, John. Yeah. Are they our missiles? Ken talking. It's ours. Yes, it's yes. Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs> so th- those rounds are landing right where I am. <laughs> and I didn't know that till today. Yeah. You guys were in the middle of that. Yeah. Oh, shit. Enemy trying to hit our missiles, huh? The car alarm, that thing's about 50 yards away from us, that car. So the impact is so much that you can, the car alarms are going off. It was so scary. That was one of the scariest. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Hmm. It's getting close, man. Yeah, it's getting real close. Turn that up a little bit. Yeah. Hey. Hey. Everything is okay? Yeah, yeah. We're going to head back to the uh, underpass. Which route? Which route? Uh, the same route, same route we came. Okay, so we have link up with your guys. Right, yes. Pause it real fast. We'll get to the trucks. So Ken's saying to the Ukrasov guy, hey, we're going to head back to the truck. Like, there's no reason for us to just sit here and wait for shit to blow us up. So, yeah. and the Ukrainian guy's like, okay, well, I guess if you want to go. Like, well, yeah, we want to go. <laughs> we don't want to come under fire. So go ahead and keep playing it. That's okay. Are you coming uh, with us? That's too far away. <laughs> <laughs> too far away. Oh, yeah, Are you coming with us? You know what? 
If you're not lucky, you'll get it anyway. Okay. If you're lucky, you won't get it anyway. Right. Hey. Right. I'll see you next time, brother. Okay. All right, guys, saddle up, saddle up. Let's move it out. All right, fuck, six. Yeah, let's go. Rock and roll. Fucking ass, you alright? Yeah. Oh, my fucking ass. Oh, man. Let's yeah. go, let's go, let's go. So Fuck, those sick. initial, like, four rounds were right on top of us. So I I heard the artillery coming in. It was only my my second, like, first mission was Hostamel, where I just got exploded by planes and helicopters for four hours. Second mission was that, where I just, four rounds of, I don't know, 82 or, or 88 or, I don't know. One, two, two, maybe right on top of us, dude, like dirt flying into the hole that I was taking cover in like dudes scurrying for cover. We're yelling, you know, Let, let's get out of here. They're reloading, like, you know, trying to find our, our time when we get out of the holes and make a, a run for it. And, uh, and so Kevin was saying, uh, a Ukrainian dude like jumped out of the hole between rounds to put his jacket on because it was freezing outside and the you said the round landed like right on top of him, freaking vaporized, just gone. And uh, and Kevin like he has he has the damage to prove it. You know his radio got like sliced by a piece of shrapnel, and it, his sling on his weapon got cut in half, and it was on fire. It was Jesus. like it was like crazy, dude. He was running, and his weapon just like fell off of him. He's like, what the? And the two ends were like burned, like they were on fire. Uh, that dude's got nine lives, man. Yeah, Kevin. Because I remember yeah. he had uh, he had been pegged in the back of his plates, like he actually took a took a round. Really? Yeah. His, when? Um, somewhere in her pen. Oh, uh, really? Or uh, not Machoon. I think it was her pen. But no, yeah. With the uh, yeah, they walked straight into the L shaped ambush, and everyone survived. They had like bullet holes in their clothing, but they all lived. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's miraculous, but yeah. just to take one right in the back of the plates, like. Yeah. You're glad you wore plates that day, man. Yeah. Um, but those, so back to this video, um, you can see it. It's like walking closer and closer. And so it's really hard to see, uh, maybe for those that were watching, but um, we're, we're in this courtyard. And so we're like, hey, we're going to go. And like, are you coming with us? And he's like, uh, if you're lucky, you don't get hit. If yeah. you're not so lucky, then you get hit. And so he's just happy to stand there. And so... Well, we're like, okay, well, we're just, we're going to be a little more intelligent about this. There's no reason to stay here where we know they're walking into yeah. us. And so as we walk out of that courtyard to turn left, you can see a bright red flash and it's right behind us, man. And I mean, the, the, whatever debris that was flying hits Ken in the ass and knocks him over. Dang. Devin gets knocked over from the shockwave. Like he trips on something. He falls over. I trip and fall. Like it was like, right. It was close enough that we all fell over yeah. and we're like, oh shit, like we're okay. We made the right call to get out of here. And so then we, then we're running down the highway down the road to where the truck is. And that run sucked, man. I mean, that was yeah full. It, it had been a long time since I was in a full combat load with a pack on my back and we're having the sprint that, that, yeah. that run sucked. <laughs> And I, I had <laughs> Sean there, and Sean had already said to us before the the operation, he was like, he was like, guys, I'm I'm not young, you know, I got a little pudge, I'm not like I used to be. 
and it's like what one and a half kilometers maybe maybe a kilometer and, and some change back to the under the bridge where you can take cover yeah like have some serious overhead cover and uh and i'm just hauling in full kit dude just smoked dax is keeping up you know right behind me we make it under the bridge and we're like he's like where's sean because it's like his big brother or whatever he's like where's sean and i'm like i'm like he's out there don't worry you know lou and everyone else come streaming in dax's like where's sean i'm like i'm starting to get worried i'm like oh no <laughs> and uh and sean comes huffing around the corner he's like it's like i almost dropped my back plates man i told you i couldn't run like that anymore it was so funny dude and uh and lou in his ukrainian accent it was one of the funniest things i've ever heard he goes the fat bastard suka <laughs> he's like he's like he's walking blat <laughs> it's like sean was like that was too much of a run for me i had to walk boys i thought they were gonna catch up and he said like a drone was was following him or whatever he, the artillery was like you know a couple rounds or whatever landed nearby he was like it was chasing me you know we had a similar uh thing um are you for our team, our Ukrainian counterpart that was attached to us was a bigger guy. Yeah. And so we run like, yeah, they're walking these rockets into us. And so it's like, let's get out of here. And so we start hauling ass. And then, so we're at the truck and it's like 20 minutes later after we'd already been at the trucks. Yeah. And he comes walking up. He's, he goes, why you run? <laughs> and we're like, well, the artillery was coming to get us. And he goes, it's just rockets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The way they view stuff is so hilarious. It's not just rockets. It's just death coming. Like, let's get out of here. Yeah. It, it was funny, man. Uh, but no, they, for the most part, they, they made good decisions around the artillery. It was just like sometimes you couldn't stop it. it, it like you were just in the open. You couldn't couldn't do anything about it. So why worry? You know? Yeah. Well, that that was part of that courage thing where they yeah. they taught us some things yeah. about just being resilient in the fight. It's like a lot, and we have to keep in mind a lot of these dudes had been fighting since 2014, and so very experienced fighters, very used to artillery coming down on them. Yeah. And for us Americans, we're not used to artillery coming down on us. Maybe you'll get mortared here or there. You know, a couple lobs, mm -hmm. a couple frog things. What are those frog things called? But a couple couple deals, like things lobbing over. Um, but consistent, like, you know, the whistle. And a, a targeted artillery barrage was something I never experienced. No. It, and that was life-changing. Yeah. That was like make, <laughs> make grown men pee in their pants, yeah. life-changing. And then, uh, you know, some Ukrainians are out there dealing with that every single day. Right. And that stuff can bring an unprepared individual to their knees in seconds. Yeah. Like just sitting in a hole, listening to the artillery that's meant for you coming in and being like, if this hits, if this hits in my hole, I'm dead, but I just hope it doesn't hit in my hole. And that's all you can do is, is, you know, say a silent prayer and hope it doesn't just barrel into you. We had, um, Ken's got some footage of this on his channel, but, um, we had an op where a BMD is just hammering our building that we're in. Yeah. And it's just hammering the side of the building. And I'm watching as like the side of the building is getting blown off. And I'm like, this is, and you feel the whole ground shakes, like your, the impact, like your chest yeah. has like shockwaves going through it. And you're like, dude, I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, like, want, this I don't want to be here. <laughs> like, yeah. 
is it but and then you ask yourself you're like is there anything that i could do right now to improve my situation and you just look around you're like uh no and you just yeah you just go back to getting hammered with you know whatever it is well obviously we had to get out of there but the the one saving grace is that the buildings are pretty robust yeah they're heavy concrete yeah, they're like some serious Soviet engineering, dude. Like, yeah. It's meant to be a bunker. Yeah. I mean, all the buildings feel that way. Yeah. It's like we had, um, I remember one of the buildings, we didn't want to be silhouetted in the window, and so we wanted to put a little keyhole in the thing. I mean, it's like a foot and a <laughs> yeah. half of brick. Like, of like solid concrete. We're trying to chisel our way yeah. so we can have a keyhole to like put some binos through or something. I mean, it is, you're working for yeah. like... You're sweating your ass off. You're working for three hours to cut a hole in the building. You're yeah. like, just forget this. It sucks. <laughs> it was, and dude, we were trying to bust down a door to an apartment, and it was like, oh, it's like a castle freaking moat, dude. <laughs> like the we drawbridge. Had, yeah, we had power tools up there. Like we had charged batteries and power tools. We cut the hinges off the first door, and then uh, take like a crowbar or a sledge to the to the locking mechanism. And there's like three steel, uh, what are they? Plates. Deadlocks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like three of them in a row. It's like a, a bank uh, security vault or something. And we're like bashing this in for like two hours. We finally take it down. And then there's a door inside of the first door. And and we took the old door and used it as a battering ram <laughs> to batter down the second door. It was like... It took like four hours to get into two apartment rooms at the top of this building. And uh, yeah, it was funny, man. Yeah, the breaching was a whole thing, man. Because you got people that show up like, yeah, I was a breacher and stuff. Not for this, you weren't. No. We don't have demo. We don't have any of the cool breaching tools. Like one dude, I forget who it was. It was, um, remember our safe house in our pen? Like the four or five story apartment building? Yeah. We we mainly occupied the first two floors. Yeah. Um. That was like a good learning lesson in breaching in that area. This one guy had a really long crowbar, and instead of breaching the door, he chiseled into the concrete around the metal frame <laughs> and basically just ripped the whole door frame out of the wall. Oh my God. And gosh. he did that in about three minutes. And I was like, whoa, that is so much faster than the axing we've been doing. Yeah. Like on the door. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that that was a lot faster, but um, so then we just started ripping door frames out of the walls, and that was yeah. My wife like, said easier. My wife says she helped uh, secure you guys a, a crowbar. She did uh, more than that. She got a crowbar, an axe, and a sledgehammer. Okay. The unfortunate thing is, we got those basically at the end of her pin. Uh, her her story about the crowbar was funny. No knock on her though. But no, yeah, it, you know, it was just that's when we got it. What was the story about the crowbar? She she was like, man, we really need a crowbar. And it, they were like sold out everywhere. Like everyone had gotten their crowbars and gotten out of Ukraine. And uh, I don't know why, but they were all sold out. And she's like, man, you know, we really need this crowbar for this unit that's out there. They're fighting around ear to pin. They, they need this stuff to breach rooms. And this guy was like, oh, okay. My ex-wife have crowbar. And like broke into his ex-wife's backyard and like broke into her shed and got this crowbar out for my wife to give to you guys that's hilarious yeah yeah did she know that you were in the same unit yeah she knew oh okay she knew, made yeah. the connection all yeah. right 
That's funny. So the crowbar we got was some guy's ex-wife stolen crowbar. Yeah, from yeah. She she fled the country. The ex-wife fled the country, and the guy was like, "Uh, oh, she doesn't need it." Like that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do feel bad in some ways because to do our job, we did have to cause damage. Yeah, um, yeah. And we had to breach doors. Um, I remember doing some scouting around one of the building. I think it was Cat had an underground garage. Mm-hmm. And we were searching for any kind of tools, just anything to be able to get in through the doors. Um, also, just the hunger thing, too, just fi- trying to find food and water and supplies yeah. and stuff because yeah. they didn't cycle us back. So we go out there with a day and a half of food because they're like, oh, you'll be back for a day. And then we're out there for four days. It's like, okay, well, we need to start looking for for scrounging resources and stuff. But there was a kind of a doomsday prep vehicle we found down there. Like, why didn't they take this? It was like a badass forerunner that had the lights. It had the extra fuel cans on it. It had water. It had a big bag of tools. And we're like, this is the ride, man. Like if we have the keys for this, like this is it. um, But couldn't find keys for it and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. But at that time we weren't being inserted by vehicle. So we were doing the 11 mile March just to start the op. And we were like, we need wheels, man. But we found a little ax like this thing. And at the time that was like the best thing that anyone had. And so we used that ax to try to breach these doors. Okay. Yeah. That wouldn't have been fun. If we didn't have those power tools, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Cause we got in so that, apartment on Universitetska street that was facing out there was like a an apartment that had kind of like a side angle on the street and so we we broke into the doors upstairs there and uh there was like two beautiful apartments and everyone's like i'm living in kiev after this like because apartments are killer and they're so cheap too yeah um but you know our sniper set up and and he found some activity around this building, this yellow building. And uh, a, a Russian truck came up and delivered food. And so we were like, there's probably like a squad or like a platoon there. Like if they're delivering food to this building. And so that was like our, our target. Like our goal was to get over to that building and kill people in there. But the Ukrainian strategy at the time was to... Uh, harass, disrupt, and uh, not really destroyed. Like we we would try to destroy vehicles, but we were just trying to thin out uh, the Russian forces on that line because they couldn't resupply. Like they had that big traffic jam. The Ukrainians were smashing the all their their stuff that was coming in. So if we could just harass and disrupt, that would be enough to force them to withdraw from that area and and that's what the ukrainians did so vadim didn't want to risk us going up there to kill these dudes but man we we were we wanted to so bad and we drove vadim to his wits end one night when i say we i mean the legionnaires like we got a call at like 1 a.m in the morning like hey position cat there's russians on position cat is what the report was and so we go up there and we're, it's like pitch black. We're all in our night vision. Whoever had it was wearing it. Maybe like three or four of us. Yeah, let's be clear. At the time in her pen, yeah. maybe three or four dudes in yeah. the whole unit had night yeah. night capabilities. Yeah, I, I had some good tubes, though, dude. Sean sold me a good pair when he left after the artillery strike. 
he was like, yeah, man, I told you I was too pudgy. And so I was like, let me buy all your, all your kit off you. Cause you had a good pair of night vision. So it was like him and Dags. And then we had like a couple pairs of French night vision, like old French night vision. We were, we were walking down this alleyway, dude, covered in broken glass. It's like a scene from like Call of Duty or something where it's like, you're just crunching on this glass in the darkness. Like there's no other sound, just yeah <laughs> and it's like very it's like penetrating the darkness as we break the glass underneath our boots and stuff you're the loudest thing out there yeah and so in like the most call of duty inspired moment of my life there was uh like a large burst of like artillery and machine gun fire and i was, I was just like i'm like run <laughs> we, we just like ran across the glass like so sprinting when there was noise right and then remaining silent when when nothing was happening it was like the mission in call of duty when you can only pull the trigger on the sniper when the artillery's falling or whatever right yeah but it was funny uh we get up there no no russians no change in at what we had known to be like the baseline of activity in that area it was just like there were no russians here for sure and we talked to the dude who said there were russians he was like just so out of it, so tired. And Vadim was pissed. He was like, We came out here at one AM for this call and and you know, these idiots over here, they don't know what they're doing. And so Kevin gets in Vadim's ear, he's like, you know, we know a place where the Russians are. Do you want to go get them? And Vadim's at his wits end. He's like he's like, Yeah, yeah, let's go get them. <laughs> and so we're like we're we're at the yellow building is our target and we're creeping dude we're just creeping through these backyards silent no dogs barking no nothing probably like two block and a half maybe past Universitetska. so we're like in the enemy territory we're like in the russian territory and uh it starts to get bright out dudes start flipping their nods up putting their nods away I flip my nods up on my head finally and I'm walking and I look to my right to clear this corner. Nothing there. As I look to my left, there's a hole in the fence that I'm walking alongside and through this hole, I'm looking dead in the eyes of a Russian, uniformed Russian soldier. Young man, probably like anywhere from I would say like 17 to 21, maybe Um, like light complexion, no real facial hair, even though he hadn't shaved because you could see like parts of like grizzle on his face, maybe five meters away. This dude was and in that split second, right? I took in all of his facial features. I took in his disposition towards me that he was not in a position to kill me. Right. He had no weapon in his hands. And, uh, just like the, the humanity of him, right. He was just like a kid like me five years ago. Right. That was me five, six, seven years ago. Um, and it was just like his, a, a look of pure it went from a look of of satisfaction of, of being on guard at night of 
uh, about to be getting off guard, just just a regular, contented, satisfactory look to a like a face contorted look of pure, unadulterated horror, right? As he saw me through this fence, wearing full kit, night vision, opscore helmet, kitted to the nines compared to this guy. With my weapon at the low ready on him, right? And he turned around, or he started to turn around to go grab his weapon. And I'll never forget that face, dude. And, and I, I killed him, right? It, extremely quickly and with extreme prejudice, shooting, starting from his hips all the way up to his face, like just killed him outright. Um, but I will never forget that look that he gave me and knowing that he was just like me in another world, right? In another dimension, me and him, we would have been friends, dude. Like we were both out there uh, on this adventure, right? Of war, of this dangerous adventure. And seven years ago, I would have been that kid getting off guard duty, right? Not knowing any better, just sucking it up, right? Content with life, content to be there. Um, even if things were a little crappy, right? And then some some dude, just ex-special operations soldier comes around the corner and I'm just totally taken off guard, right? But only because of my training in the U.S. military did I know any better, right? Through all those mistakes that I made, um, through all those things that I learned, was was I able to beat him that day? But it just as easily could have been reversed, and we just as easily could have been friends, you know, in another life. And it, it's just uh, that—that's one reason why war is terrible, right? And it—it it is terrible in every way. Um, but it—it it must be right. War must be while people are willing to stand up for something. And, uh, and, and those kinds of things must be to display like the true character of people like Greg and people like Dan Swift and, uh, and all of our buddies fighting over there. You know, you, you don't get that high level of character and moral accountability while you're living in the U S, um, playing video games and, you know living an easy life. I've heard you tell this story a couple times and I appreciate your candor. Mm. It's, um, it's a really up close and personal moment in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that it'll probably stay with you forever. Certainly. Because it's, it's one thing to be on a team that gets some kills or to be on a, a part of a rocket ambush or, something a little less connected, right? Mm -hmm. But it's another to be five meters away from someone. You lock eyes with a person. You remember his disposition, his facial features, if he had yeah. stubble on his face. I mean, you're, it's a pretty detailed accounting <clears throat> and a memory of what happened. Do you feel a sadness having done that, having been in that moment? Uh, 
I don't want to say that anything I did in that moment affects me negatively at all because it, it doesn't. It it has only affected me in how I view war. Like it, it used to be um just like an adventure. It used to just be um like stamping my own man card, right? Yeah. That that's the only way it's affected me. I would have done it again a hundred times over, right? He he was following his orders and I was following mine and uh and we were on different sides. And that's that's what happens in war. You know, you, you do your job um and you do it well. So I wouldn't change anything. And it doesn't it's not like it haunts me in my dreams. Like I haven't dreamed about it one single time. Yeah. Right? I, I've never seen that face at night. I, I can bring it up in my head when I recall that memory. Sure. Um, but it, it's not something that haunts me. Um, it's, it's just something that changed my perspective. Uh, and it, it is saddening, right? It is saddening that I had to take this young man away from his family and, and away from all the experiences he might have had. Um, and, and you know, when I, when I think about people like Greg who... You know, his parents never got to see him get married. His parents never got to see him, you know, raise a family. There's so many memories that were missed out on. I'm extremely sad about that. I think that young individual should add all those opportunities. Um, But he he was there for the same reason I was, you know, and and he was the same— you know, he had the same level of, of character as far as I know that I did, right? Uh, of being there to support what he viewed as a righteous cause or as a way to stamp his man card or, you know. It, and it has nothing to do with, with geopolitics or any of this, you know, NATO proxy war BS. Like, on the ground, there's none of that. And that's why it it irks me a lot when people say, oh, we're sending so much aid to Ukraine, but it's, you know, such a corrupt country and and the U.S. is corrupt. And so money's getting kicked back to the Democrats and, you know, Zelensky scamming off the top and whatever. While all of those things may be true, that has no bearing on the fact that if of the money we send, if one soldier on the ground gets helped that to me makes it a worthy cause and and a worthy expenditure because if you know homeboy vlad flying down the the bombed out road to bakhmut to defend his grandma's house who lives in kramatorsk you know 45 minutes away the next big city to to get hit after bakhmut if he gets a javelin that makes all that aid worth it or if if one dude gets a a thermal monocular that saves his life one day, that makes all that aid worth it, in my opinion. Because it's not about the geopolitics. It's not about the corrupt people. It's about the guys on the ground. It's about the 18-year-old with the rifle. It's about those men and women defending their homes. I love that viewpoint, man. Um, Mm -hmm. And you and I haven't really talked at length about this. And I know the other guys that we've been with have pretty much a similar viewpoint. I think we've all 
come to the same conclusion having been there yeah independently and then when we come together and talk about it it's interesting to find that you have almost an identical viewpoint that i have about it that it's about the dude on the ground mm. and that's the cause and um and i'm using my own thoughts and words but while you taking that kid's life i can say that it's a sad thing yeah right he didn't certainly yeah. he didn't get to have the life experiences that we would have uh, liked to have seen for a young kid to have but what in taking of his life what amount of lives in ukraine were saved what amount when we saw her pin and i and i don't mean to fast forward too far into the whole story but when we go back to Erpin in May and we see the liberation of that town where there are kids playing on the street, they're riding their bicycles, couples are walking in the park, people are eating food that's sold on the street corners again. Erpin is um, urbanized once again and people are living there. Yeah. How many of those lives, and we know civilians were still living in Erpin it's beyond me why they were doing that. Yeah. And I, I've got a story I haven't told yet, but um, of just seeing these people in bombed out buildings standing around an oil drum that's on fire, mm-hmm. have, they're burning whatever in there to stay warm. Remember, our pen, we were freezing our balls off, and there's people just living bombed out buildings, not leaving. Yeah. And it's like, how many of their lives were saved because of your action? You know? And so for me, that's like the justification. That's the rationalization. It's like, I don't want to have to take life. I don't want that to happen. I'd like for all of those young kids to be able to grow up and have a happy life. But if it means that that babushka down the road or that family down the road, is it going to be able to come back to their home and be safe and live their life? Um, well, that's what we're there to do. Mm-hmm. That's the job. So do you, a lot of the time, do you think you equate your actions with like, a specific result, for example, like what we did in Ukraine led to, you know, these, these measurable improvements or, or measurable outcomes. That's a good question. I think it has to, I think okay. I have to, I think, and I think what is a, what does an old soldier look back at? Like you want to know that what you did meant something, there was meaning to it. And what was the outcome? Everyone killed each other and went home and nobody was better off for it. What's the point of that? Then why did we yeah. do it? We just all stamped our man cards and went home? Yeah. Well, a lot of people lost their lives over us just proving our, our point for our own ego. Hubris, it's terrible. Um, and as you, like you said, like um, the more experienced soldier, I think there's something deeper. There's something more to the ethos of who you are as a warrior than just stamping your man card. Mm. And so when I look at it, and for me, it was um, a, a powerful moment to go back to Urpin and see that that place had been liberated. It's like, oh, this is what it was all for. And I never, you don't get to see that. You do a tour in Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I was in Iraq. You don't get to see that. You go in, you do your thing, and you leave, but you don't see a, a place that was once terrorized and under heavy barrage of artillery and everything's destroyed and on fire. And all of a sudden you go back three months later and it's thriving and there's people living there and they're rebuilding and you can see glass being put back on windows and that, I I don't know where else that has happened in such a short amount of time where you can see the, 
results of your efforts mm-hmm. that I, and it, and by no stretch of the imagination can I say like the International Legion we participated because there were many other units than just us for sure oh yeah but by no stretch of the imagination can we say that we stopped the Russian advancement in Erpin they did not make it to Kiev why because of part of what we contributed to mm-hmm. um, and it's not a brag it's just saying we were there along with many thousands of other people but um, everything was spread pretty thin man and yeah. and we didn't have any support like you said there is no medevac there is no good calm plan there is none of that stuff and yet um, they did not advance into Kiev and that was their plan take mm-hmm. over Kiev and now you own the country right yeah and that to me was a massive reward to know that Kiev remains safe today as a part of what the International Legion did yeah uh, I mean you're definitely right in in a lot of ways um, the, the way I tend to think of it though is there's like this big overarching plan right and and we take very little part in in changing it like i probably could have not killed that soldier and things would have happened the same you know and it's not it's not me just being like dejected or or downright uh depressed over it it's it's just like it's hard for me to see how how my little piece played into the the overall you know well there's that butterfly effect right we don't know what the effects of today will impact two weeks from now, three weeks from now. Right. But we know that the overall effort, like I'm going to tell you to dig a 12 foot trench, um, six feet wide and like 50 feet long. Go ahead and get started. You know, here's a shovel. If you do that by yourself, it's an insurmountable uh, task. You'll feel so overwhelmed by it, right? But if I throw 50 other guys into that with you, it's like, what did my one shovel do Yeah. in, in I, terms I of digging right. that trench? Yeah. It's like, you were there, though. You contributed to that digging. It's like the loss of that one kid, the, the movement of flanking this one unit to prevent their advancement, or this one, one little thing was a contribution in the massive total yeah, that prevented Kiev's invasion. Um, so while you can't say you were the liberator of Erpen and you were the yeah. hero of the whatever, you know, like um, very few people ever get that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because for the most part, it's it, one individual dude on the ground that's a contributing factor to thousands of people trying to do the same thing. And that overall hopefully tips the scales in favor of victory yeah. over defeat. No, um, you're definitely right. Definitely right. It's just hard for me to see it, you know? Well, I think it's also hard for people to accept and take credit for something. Well, um, that's true. And too. there's a humility there, I yeah. understand. But, um, yeah, it's it's not a brag. It's not saying mm-hmm. anything, um, anyone, we're, we're more awesome or you're more awesome than anyone else. It's just saying, like, we were there, we participated in a thing, and, and um, ultimately there was victory in that area. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's a good thing. Hopefully, it leads to to victory in the whole country. Yeah, yeah. Let's do a break. Um, it's All a right. good time to do a break, and then uh, we'll come back and pick it up. Sounds good. All right. Well, I think we covered her pin pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, at least from a high level, you know, there's a lot more stories we have from there. Um, what were your thoughts about 
the dudes in the Legion, once we got operational, like the people we were working with, um, how did you, how did you like the dynamic in the teams and stuff? So it, it was tough, um, because there was, there was no rank structure. If you were on the team, you, you had equal rank to everyone else on the team. And the only rank was given to someone who could speak Ukrainian for us, at least. Yeah. Uh, I know it's different in other places, but it, it makes sense in some ways. In other ways, it doesn't um, because the Ukrainian that was in charge of us was not willing to work in an American way on an American and British team. So it was kind of, you know, led, led to some uh, heads butting and stuff. I will say, though, uh, once we got operational, every dude there was meant to be there. Like, we had a singular purpose, which was to kill the enemy and uh, and not listen to our Ukrainian commander. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, but we, we had a single purpose. We were out there to kill the enemy. But this, these um, volunteers coming over, right, we wanted rank. We wanted pay, we more pay than they were giving us. We wanted all these things. And the Ukrainians weren't willing to provide it for us because, A, they had no idea how to hold, or they, they couldn't. They just can't hold people accountable for what they say they are. So you get a dude who comes in and says, oh, I was a, a sergeant in the U.S. military. I want to be, you know, a, a platoon sergeant here. Like that's that's how my experience is gonna gonna change things. Like I'm, I'm worthy enough to be a platoon sergeant. They don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. They've never worked with those militaries before, and, and here these people are demanding to hold this rank. And this isn't the first time in history that that's ever happened before, right? In the American Revolution, uh, Congress was sending Washington these French guys. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're military officers. All, all these guys from the West Indies and even from mainland France uh, were coming to Washington staff through Congress with rank and pay. And Washington had to write Congress and be like, stop sending me these people because they don't speak English. Like, it, if they don't speak English, how can we integrate them into the, into the Continental Army? Like, get them out of here. And in general they had a, a very poor experience with these French volunteers because they were the same thing as foreign legionnaires were in Ukraine, inflating their service and saying, you know, we deserve this, we deserve that, and and make me a commander without speaking the native language. So I, I understand why the Ukrainians wouldn't give us that. Um, but at the same time, I do wish that we could have at least held like up to E4 rank within our own teams, you know, just to have some actual delegated authority um, to tell people what to do sometimes. Yeah, I noticed with their pin, there was essentially zero trust from the Ukrainians towards us. Mm -hmm. We were uh, just meat puppets, like get in the truck and go, no questions, yeah. let's just go, no planning, no discussion, and mm -hmm. that was how it was going to be. Once a lot of the riffraff kind of faded out and then we had the teams that were pretty stable, mm -hmm. still had shuffling around because we were short a guy or we needed yeah, you know, somebody yeah. left because of some whatever. 
So you still have some personnel changes, but for the most part, especially once we were down in Zappo, things were pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go to Zappo and then come back. Um, what they what they started giving us was a little more window into the way things were planned, the way things were happening. So I know like um, uh, we would be taken by the commander to uh, to the ops yeah, bunker, talk or the jock, yeah, or whatever. whatever they called yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Talk, jock, coc, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so all that stuff. So they would take us there, and they'd have the TVs up, they'd have the drone footage, and we're like, "Oh, you guys have had this the whole time? <laughs> like, you yeah. have all these assets on the? They have like the GPS the tablet and all the stuff, and so they have all the mapping, and they have known enemy positions yeah. mapped on there. I'm like, oh. Like we we thought you guys had nothing, man, and so you have had this the whole time. You're just not telling us, and so I didn't care so much about the rank because that didn't matter at the point. We knew we were privates. We knew that mm-hmm. we were foreigners. They're not going to give us secret information. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, but I did want to have information that would help us operationally to know. Oh, there we know there's a machine gun nest over there or something like that is important for us to know on the ground. Yeah. Um. So once they started taking us there and we could start taking some notes, start getting some imagery and stuff, then uh, that made things a lot more effective because you talked earlier about a suicide mission. Um, there was one that they told us, hey, this is this is a good mission. You can go do this. And I won't get into the details of it, but the, it literally was a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was to walk... Well, I'll, t- I'll get into it. It, yeah. it was to walk like 15 clicks behind the enemy line and to wait at an intersection completely exposed. No trees, no trench, no nothing. Just completely flat T intersection and then just wait for a tank and shoot it with a rocket and then run back 15 clicks <laughs> back to the front line. It's like, dude, I mean, I'm all down for the fight, but like... Yeah, that's pretty. Is intense. anyone? If we get in the shit, is someone going to come help us? No, no, it's just you and you know. If you like, come on, man. Like, let's let's put together a plan that makes sense, dude. I, I was willing to do something like that though. When, uh, like, especially just getting hammered with artillery all the time, I was like, I was like, put me on a, a 30k long walk to kill those dudes who are sending these shells in. Like, I will do it. I, I'll do. I'll be out there. <clears throat> Three days, no no water, no food. I don't care. Like, just let me go walk and kill these dudes. Tell me where they are and tell me where I can find them. Well, that, that was my that was my thing. Is I told them I was like, we don't know when something might come by, so we're just sitting there out in the complete exposed flat yeah. farmland for how long? Like, get us some drone footage. Get us an actual target that yeah. we can move on. Now we've got something. Now we know where we're going, why we're going there, what's there, what level of. Uh, munitions we need to destroy it like we have information but just sending me to an empty field intersection with no knowledge (laughs) of what may show up like that's a that's a harder pill to swallow so that's what my thing was to our commander was like um that's why i got later on after we left zappo and went back to kiev i asked him to issue me some certain tools and equipment because Hey, I've got an idea to do just that. Give yeah. me, I'll go 30 clicks. I don't care about the distance. It's just about knowing what I'm going towards. Mm-hmm. And so we started kind of developing mission packages and stuff, but I don't want to digress. I just want to focus on what you were saying is like they started trusting us with more information. Yeah. And as we got that information, they started understanding like we'll do the job 
and he even made a joke. He goes, I know you guys like to talk first and then you go on the mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so once they realized we want to do a little bit of planning, put it together, give us some of your Intel stuff, we'll develop some of our own package, and then um, and then then the ops started getting a lot more organized. But but that only happened after we we proved our ability to go out there and kill the enemy and not yeah. just totally decompose as a unit. Yeah. Because Vadim's first experience when he brought the Foreign Legion to Mashtun was dudes are deserting in droves. Yeah. As soon as it gets hard, the Americans and the foreigners, they run away. And if they take one casualty, it's game over. Right? There's no more fighting after casualties start start happening. And so they why would they trust us with that information? Sure. When we're deserting, you know? And it was only after that whole fight for Eardpin and we had this core group of dudes who stayed through the whole thing that they were like, okay, now now we can do some talking because you've proven that you're you're capable of operating. You're capable of fighting. Yeah. And only because of that. And so I think that was important for us. Absolutely. Uh, prove your worth, right? Yeah. Um, earn your lunch. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier kind of a Call of Duty thing. And I don't want it to be so jo- <laughs> jokey or anecdotal, but yeah. it was pretty you level up <laughs> yeah you it, it the parallels of a call of duty game and yeah. what we went through it's yeah. it's hard to ignore that you start out like I, we showed you the you on the couch with the crappy fnc like yeah that's how the game starts level man. zero level zero a gun that's just ancient that barely works <laughs> and it jams you have no optics on it and then then they um then they got us the new weapons and yeah. then slowly someone got an optic someone got a a better piece of kit, someone got a whatever. And so yeah. it's like you keep leveling up and now you get more information and now you have more battle space information and now you yeah. get access to the map. Yeah. Because at level one, you don't have, you don't know the map. Yeah. You don't know where anything's at. Yeah, exactly. Level five, there's maps <laughs> and now you have enemy positions. I remember, I remember looking at Kevin and Jesse um, and they got these rifles with M4 suppressed rifles with zero thermals on top. And I was like, how many prestiges do you need to get that? <laughs> I was like, yeah. But that was just because of their, you know, being down to clown and mischief and getting ambushed and all that good stuff. Well, I remember coming in to the hotel lobby and seeing him holding his suppressed M4, just like yeah. he's got he's got the suppressor on his foot and he's just holding it and just standing there looking like a badass. Yeah. And uh, I was like, we hadn't gotten the Brens yet. And so we're like, what? Like, what is this? Yeah. Where did you get this? Like, <laughs> this guy looked like a magician. Like, he had just the best gun out there. And yeah. then come to find out, those M4s sucked. Cause yeah, was, they were no good at all. Yeah, there's something wrong with them. Yeah, they're made, they're like some knockoff or something. But it was funny, man. Sean made a funny joke uh, that when they were taping our arms with like yellow or blue tape, he was like, this is the worst game of Airsoft I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so funny dude oh man I, yeah i didn't get that why why we had i mean and we would switch and it was almost like both sides knew like okay today we're gonna switch you're green i'm white today, tomorrow it's yellow and red and yeah they would always switch i don't know what the deal was with the armbands but i was i brought this up in the car i was like if the enemy is wearing armbands can we just not wear armbands and everyone just looked at me and no one said anything and it was <laughs> like and lou turned around he's like no mate we wear the blue and i'm like okay 
Got it. <laughs> <laughs> no, mate. Yeah. You have to understand, mate. I have an order. <laughs> yeah, th- this is how it is. Uh, I was like, all right, whatever, man. But dude, Lou said some funny stuff, man. He's got a ton of good one-liners. He does. Yeah. Uh, he was a funny guy. I, I like I like having him around. Uh, he had some funny stuff to say. Yeah. And uh, as much as, you know, tactically we didn't get along, just great human being yeah. in general. Yeah. And, and you know, patriot, awesome guy. Yeah, I have uh, – I'll try to keep it in the positive, yeah. right, because not getting along tactically put me in a pretty difficult situation a couple of times. And Yeah. Um, I think that ultimately taking the conversation away from him and just in general, it's like the uh, – the tactics for sure, I think that's where we brought the value, just double tapping on that. It's like it's like there's a way to do the same op but with a more uh effective outcome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I even saw it too, you know, when I killed that Russian kid, like it was a short gunfight afterwards where we had them by complete surprise. We had full um what you, full initiative, right? The momentum was fully in our favor, but instead of closing with and and completely destroying, we decided to withdraw because of of the Ukrainian command. Uh, and we were pissed afterwards. We were yelling at them. We were like, the heck are you doing? Like, we, we had them on their... We killed their, their guard that was outside. Like, we should have gone in the building and freaking... And burn the place down and let them all, you know, run out and, and finish them there. You know, we, we had the opportunity to kill an element that was getting a truck sent to them of food. So, like, at least 8 to 12 dudes, if not 30. Sure. And when, when, we ki- when we cleared that building later, the entire basement was covered in sleeping quarters. So, like, 30-plus oh, wow. mattresses. And we had them. Like whole, whole we had him, we had him in bed at five a.m. sleeping. Yeah, like we could have smoked those guys, dude. But you know, they weren't ready for the gunfight. They said we're gonna withdraw, and that's what we did. Yeah, I I struggled with that. Yeah, some indecisiveness, some unwillingness to do what we came to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to get away from her pin because there's a lot more stuff that happened. But um, we had done, a, you know, on CAT, um, our team was doing a lot of Overwatch stuff and we were trying to do calls for fire. Yeah. Um, so having been in an artillery unit, I was familiar with like how to call the fire, make adjustments and stuff. Obviously using MGRS, um, Ukrainians use the, not being NATO. They, yeah. they have their own uh, mapping system. So... I had the GPS that adju- adjusted to ha- it had their format. I forget what the code is for what they're using, but it had that. So I adjusted my stuff to them so that whatever grid I was giving them was their numbers. Yeah. But you have the language barrier and even though my uh our our the dude, the dude attached to us spoke English and Ukrainian, his translation and understanding of what I was saying in terms of adjustments was different and then the people on the other end, I 
you always want to understand who you're talking to, like who's a unit. Mm-hmm. And it's always good that someone from your unit at some point has gone and shook hands with yeah. these people and said, hey, just yeah, so, so they care about you. Well, so they care about you and also so they know, hey, when I say this, this is what I mean. Just so we're all on the same page. Now, mm-hmm. we all should have the same training, so it shouldn't matter. But you always, if you're going into a big thing and I'm going to need your assets and I'm going to call for fire and you're going to respond to that mission, that fire mission, if I say up 50, yeah, I'm not... I'm I'm not talking from your position. I'm talking up fifty from my position, right? Or 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 are you expecting that I'm going to say up fifty from the way that you're looking, right? Mm-hmm. And so that conversation hadn't been had because I didn't know how what their SOPs were. So yeah, but I said so. I would I would make those corrections. I said up fifty from our position, so that it was clearly passed on, like from the way that I'm looking at the target. Yeah, up fifty, so that they can adjust fire and. It was dancing all over the place, never getting to the... I mean, I saw those guys. I mean, I could see them. I'm looking through the binos. They're standing right outside. There's a yeah. BTR on the other side of this building, and it's driving me crazy that I cannot get these yeah. guys walked into the target. And so I would say, give me give me a round in this position. Give me a round in this position. And and then they would call back, oh, we're just going to shoot five rounds, and you tell us what happened. <laughs> That's not how that works. How do I... Yeah. Because then they would shoot the five rounds in various locations. I'm like, what do you want me to adjust, man? The first round, the fifth round? Do you remember which position adjustment you had for each round? Yeah. So how can I adjust that? It's like, I need you to do one round. (laughs) Let me adjust you on target and then fire for effect. But don't just shoot five rounds randomly. And that that goes back to, you know, just eight, eight, nine-year-old military. They don't have all that those hundreds of years of experience and uh you know all these different kinds of wars to pull from yeah like especially in ukraine they have the experience they gained from the soviet military before i think it was 1991 when they gained their independence um they have their pre-1991 experience so afghanistan georgia chechnya and it's it's just a very you know Soviet uh, kind of way, and and just in these recent eight or nine years is when they've been transitioning to a more Westernized version of that. So it's a little bit of of hybrid fighting. The Ukrainians make it work for them wonderfully, yeah, right. But for us, it, it didn't work because that's not how we were fighting, you know. But uh, yeah. But that's it's it's tough because we want to fight our way always, and they they have their own. It's just it's different, and it is what it is. Yeah, adapting to the place you're in is mm-hmm. important. Yeah, and I was given some really good advice years ago. Yeah, um, by a, a pretty good dude that said uh, you have to be a chameleon. So you come mm-hmm. into this new environment, and um, maybe it's foreign to you. And you can't come in expecting them to adapt to you. Yeah. You're a lone dude in this big thing. So you're you're a lone dude in this one giant machine. You have to adapt to this machine. Mm-hmm. You're not going to flex and bend this machine to your will. That's just not how things work. Yeah. It's not, the, just not how the universe works, right? It's like you're a lone asteroid coming into the orbit of a solar system. You're going to get sucked into the gravity of how that solar system works, man. You're not going to move the star off its axis or trajectory or anything like that so um a little bit of some tolerance 
and that's part of that international worldliness, right? Of like, be well-traveled, understand that different cultures are not you and mm-hmm. be, be willing to adapt. Yeah. And, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, that's, that's what my, uh, my advice to, you know, Americans or anyone else who's going to go over there. That's, that's also what my advice boils down to like, go there to help and, and to conform. Don't go there to be the soldier of fortune because you're just as likely as any of the other, you know, hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers who are nameless in Western media who have who have died out there as well every day, dying hundreds. Um, by now, I'm sure that it's in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of you know nameless Ukrainian soldiers that that you'll never hear about. You're just as likely to be one of them. Uh, more, much more than you are to be some like battlefield hero. Yeah. What have you observed? In the media, because I know you're pretty in touch with the news and the history of things, no, more so than I am. I'm not in touch with the news at all. I don't read any news. Well, when we talk and I've heard some of the stuff you've said, like it seems like you're more in touch with it. Um, but y- you had mentioned before, like when we were in Oregon, you had mentioned something about like the mindset and the reactions of the volunteers that come back and they have like a certain taste in their mouth about the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So these volunteers, they go over to fight in the Foreign Legion and then they come back and they just trash the Ukrainians like the Foreign Legion's crap, the Ukrainian military's crap and everything's crap. And it's like, what was your purpose even in going over there? If like that, that makes it clear to me that their purpose was to do nothing but serve themselves. Right. Because if they went over there to heed Zelensky's Zelensky's call to to establish the Foreign Legion and to you know help Ukraine defend the motherland, right? Then why would they come back and just just trash them like ceaselessly? It makes no sense to me. And and a lot of the things of what they're saying are those guys who never made it past the the battlefield friction, right? They showed up, they got their chain jerked around. And then they went home and then they just trash the Ukrainians. It makes no sense at all. Yeah. And I listened to, to some of these, to some of these YouTubers and stuff. And they're like, Oh, the, the foreign legion is this, the foreign legion is that like, and they're getting these, um, these assessments from the people who came back within the first two, three months of the war. Right. And it's like, what, what kind of assessment? You know, are, are these, can these people really give, they don't know the, the full picture. They were just there for a couple months and I, I don't claim to know the full picture either, but I'm at least willing to say, give them the benefit of the doubt. Like they're still fighting this war when we thought they would collapse in a month. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. And it's, this isn't like a, um, a raw, raw session for Ukraine or anything, yeah, but no, it, it's not still, at all. It, I think it's more of a thing to point at. And obviously we're Americans, we're think we're hearing from Americans that are coming back and they have that bad taste in their mouth and it's it's certainly anyone listening, I don't want that to be the mindset of what you think is going on over there. I think you and I are in agreement that um there's some good things happening there. And obviously the Ukrainians are doing a good job because they're not being overrun. They haven't yeah. been fully taken over and um for what it is right now, Kiev is safe and a lot of cities are safe and um and they've even taken back some ground mm-hmm. um 
So that's that's certainly the sign of somebody that's doing something effectively. Um, exactly. And you can, I think, uh, and I learned something in boot camp. The senior drill instructor said something, and I don't know if it was the in relation to the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas saying. I don't know if that had come out yet, but he said what goes on in the house stays in the house. Mm-hmm. So maybe we yeah. can fact check that. Like when did the... Uh, the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm sure that's pretty timeless. I think maybe you just had never heard of it. Maybe. <laughs> See if you can find the, when did that saying come out, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But anyway, in o, and this is in 02, senior, uh, in 03, advertising agency. Oh, 03, oh. okay. So this is, yeah, so a year later, so a year after my senior drill instructor had said this, uh, he, goes, what, he goes, what happens in the house stays in the house. Okay, okay. And so if there's, like, we, we've shared some stories here, but we're not skylining anybody. We're no. not talking trash about anyone. Like, obviously, there's things that were ineffective. Obviously, there's things that we had some issues logistically. Um, I think it's it's nice to be honest about what was and what wasn't mm-hmm. so people have a clear picture of it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean... We were we were there nevertheless, man, and yeah. so we're not there to trash on anybody. We're there to support that place and understand that um, Ukraine is a gateway to the rest of Europe. Yeah, and um, yeah, so they've had you know as as the gateway to the rest of Europe, right? You've had the Soviets march through Kiev, the Nazis. You've had uh, the Reds, the Whites, the mongols at one point the vikings even before them and so and not to mention countless hundreds if not thousands of other you know larger or more localized armies have at one point marched through kiev and so when when we show up and we say we're americans from the american military they're like okay (laughs) like cool (laughs) like we we have our own way of doing things and we don't care right like that's it they they don't care they've had a million uh, not a million but they've had a bunch of armies march through kiev at one point or another all throughout their history which also i think plays into when you were talking about you know these people who stayed in Irpin, right those those people some of them those older ones could have been alive during world war ii when you know very young at that age but when the Nazis marched through at one point and then the Soviets like it's not, it's nothing new to them. They've, they've sheltered the storm before. I remember, uh, after you left Paul, I was in, uh, Sviato here. It was called little, it was like this, uh, the city on a river and we're down on the front line, like right on the river's edge and a drone goes up. And we're like, oh, no, we're about to get smashed with artillery. So we start looking for a basement. And I kick in this gate. And I'm moving over to the basement. And uh, I kick the door in. And my rifle's pointed at, like, two old, old, old babushkas, dude. And I'm like, oh, man. They looked like they were, like, out of a time capsule, dude. Like, 105. They looked old and i was like what are you guys doing here like we're about to be shelled and they're just like chilling down there in the basement and uh and they were freaking out dude they thought we were russians and uh but so one one of the 
Ukrainians came down and calmed them down. Wow. Yeah. Was that, because I know I heard a story from somebody that there was a woman that had been in World War II, had been shelled, and had survived it. Was that those women, or? I, so I don't know. I didn't speak to them at all. I didn't okay. have anyone translate for me or anything. Um, pro, so, no. I, I, I know it was somebody's experience, and if one of the dudes listening remembers this, uh, I'd love to re- be reminded, but it was somebody on some op ran into a, some World War II yeah. surviving woman that had been under artillery, yeah. and now she's had survived all these different wars since World War II, and then um, and then now this one. Yep. And it was like, geez, man, what's this old lady's like story? And it, it's, you know, it's no different to them. Whether you're in the American military or the French military, British, Nigerian, doesn't matter to them. Yeah. They, they have, they have their own structure, and they're making it work. Yeah. So it, it's tough to go over there as a legionnaire and just, and just be like, you have to do things the way we used to do them. And that's the only right way. Like, it, as an infantryman, you have to be open. You have to be courageous. You have to be down to clown, right? Above all, <laughs> right. more than anything, you just have to be down. Yeah. Yeah, man. That adaptation to uh, your surroundings is, is key, man. That's, yeah. that's big. Yeah. Um, to whether or not you're going to lose your stuff, lose your mind, or. Um, or stay in the fight. Um, in term, you had mentioned this earlier, like in terms of philosophy of like being an infantryman, being who you are, to determine, um, having that mindset of like Greg is the non-combatant yeah. guy, and he's the one that convinces you to stay in the fight. Like, what is your mindset on staying in the fight, winning that gunfight over somebody? versus losing the fight and surrendering to fear. Dude, special operations has become this, like, it's like it's it's just so Hollywood now, right? It's like these super, like, here here's what special operations is. It is not a decisive effort, right? It is a, a, a shaping operation. So in any any strategic plan the decisive operation the operation that decides whether or not you win has nothing to do with special operations well i don't not nothing but it's not they're not directly um how do i want to say this special operations do not partake as as the decisive unit right they provide shaping for the battlefield, they provide support, but in no way would would a general say, we're going to push our special operations units as the spearhead to to take this ground or, or like as the, the main force, right? Because that's not the purpose of special operations. We shape the battlefield for the infantry to move on. Right, that's that's what Navy SEALs cut their teeth doing in World War II. These long-range reconnaissance missions, these uh, blowing up obstacles on the beach in preparation for D-Day, like that. That's not the main operation, right? They could have still landed troops without those things happening, and, and we still could have taken the beach without any of that. And and not to to put down what the SEALs did, right? Because those guys. 
died in incredibly high numbers. It wasn't like they, they were so tactically proficient that they weren't out there dying. No, these missions were dangerous and people were dying. Like Merrill's Marauders in World War II suffered an 80% casualty rate. That That is special operations. Like go out there, do the mission, harass, shape the battlefield, destroy, right? At, at the cost it takes to complete the mission. Right, that's a special operations mindset. Not this. I don't have enough of a plan. I don't have enough equipment. I don't have this. I don't have that. Like, that's not what special operations is. But that's what it's become, or that's what, at least what it seems to have become. Right. So I'll I will always, every single time, respect the the regular infantrymen as much as I respect anyone else in the special operations community, if not more so. Because a lot of people who, who make it into special operations nowadays, they don't have that mindset where they're down just to take the fight to the enemy, right? They need all the stuff. They need the support. And, you know, I hate, I'm going to toot my own horn just because I'm a ranger or ex-ranger. Get but it. those dudes were down to clown, man, over in Ukraine. We, we had, you know, in, in Mikolaiv at one point, we had like six rangers there. And every single one of them down to take the fight to the enemy. Yeah. And there were, you know, SF dudes, Marines, Army, everyone. I saw everyone from every branch of service, from almost every special operations unit, give up and leave it at one point or another. Would you agree? Give or take. Like go back home or something? Yeah, just, just be like, this isn't for me. Yeah, at some point. It's hard to make a, a basic judgment like that because what were the reasons people had to leave? Because um, I'm thinking about myself in that in that mode. Like, after Mick yeah. Alive, I had to go. No, but, I'm not saying like that. Like, they got back from an operation that went poorly. Yeah. And they they were like, this is it for me. I'm done. Yeah, people did that for sure. Yeah. Everyone started looking for an out after a couple bad yeah. ops on, on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um but I think that lends to partially being why, like, some dudes are not water trained, and so. But I was I was an army ranger, dude. I had yeah. nothing to do with the water. Yeah, but you I was guys, okay. I went out there, man. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm trying to save it from be, speaking poorly of anyone, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like uh, people have their varying reasons why they leave, but you're right. People started leaving once once ops started getting sideways. Mm. Um, you're right. People started checking out. Yeah. But but my point is not to like to trash anyone. It's just to say like at its core, special operations was about completing the mission under any circumstances. Yeah. Regardless of equipment and regardless of support. So, you know, the Rangers at Point Du Hawk, they stormed the beach to take these guns that weren't even there, right? And they took massive casualties, right? Second Ranger Battalion insane casualties running up these you know scaling these cliffs while german machine gunners are shooting just pouring fire down on the beach and dropping grenades on them like it was nuts yeah i I do gotta say like you mentioned earlier um like sean's admittedness that he was a little overweight and you know couldn't run and stuff so it comes down to capability though like if you've got a team one like we were being utilized in a special operations capacity down south, 
um, because mm-hmm. we were trying to shape things, right? Yeah, we were trying. Certainly, to, we were trying to yeah. establish beachheads. We were trying, which there was some effectiveness there. Mm-hmm. We won't get into what that was, but there was some definite outcomes that result, positive outcomes that resulted from our efforts in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we can we can say from a, def, a definition standpoint, we weren't doing infantry work. We were doing shaping efforts, right? Yeah. By your definition, so it'd be special operations, but. Um, but not everyone was the kind of capable dude that needed to be, uh, that did not everyone had the fitness level to Mm. perform it. Right. So you're going into doing something that requires that no quit attitude with people that didn't have the full fitness capability to be able to, to be able to overcome their body. Yeah. There's mindset and then ability to execute. Right. And yeah, unfortunately we didn't always have the ability yeah and and that's what i i'm thinking is like not everyone had the ability mm-hmm. um and and it's again not a knock on the heart of the guys or or anything but um that fitness man that'll they'll eat you alive if you can't uh you know ruck with that pack deep yeah. deep into the territory where you're supposed to go yeah and so um there should be we should have a mick alive episode where we talk about Lessons learned. Lessons learned. The mosquitoes and yeah. the and the whole the whole thing. We were calling it all the, since we had six rangers. We were calling it Peninsula phase of a uh, ranger school man because it was just so crappy out there. Yeah, yeah. Certainly one of the worst environments I've ever done any work in. Yeah, um, it was tough. It was tough to maintain because we're not sleeping. We're being eaten alive, mm-hmm. and. Um, the only way to prevent ourselves from from being eaten alive is to completely cover ourselves in every piece of clothing we had. And it still wasn't just enough. Sweating our asses off and yeah. it still wasn't enough. Yeah. And um and you're being asked to like go do <laughs> yeah. go do stuff. It's like it was a tough deal. And then uh the stuff with the boats and the whole thing, it was <laughs> I remember we were <laughs> we were taking that ambush position and they were burying the, the like makeshift IED we made. And uh, I remember Adam asking, he goes, are we at the minimum safe distance from that? And everyone just looked at him, but no one wanted to move again. <laughs> everyone was just like, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a, it was, it was a tough environment for sure. Yeah. Um, and you talked earlier about just having the logistics in place to be able to get to the op, like just yeah. all of the effort. All of the pain, and and I mentioned this in my last episode, talking about the Ukraine Independence Fund, like where we're trying to do fundraising to help with the volunteers over there, with um, med kits and protective equipment and and the logistical support, like the amount of effort to just get a dude to a place with the right equipment, the right tools, the right uh, sustenance, uh, water, um, and to get him. The, all the stuff he needs to do the job and to get him safely back, that is a, a massive yeah, amount of work. Huge. And that is, I don't, I don't want to put percentages on things, but that is a massive percentage of the whole deal. Mm-hmm. It's like all of your fitness, all of your training, all of your um, weapon skills, all of that stuff is pretty binary, right? It's yeah. like be in the gunfight and you're out of the gunfight and, and I don't want to get into all that stuff, but it's like all of the work to get there and to leave is a massive percentage of the whole thing. And well, it's most of it. Yeah. It's more than most of it. It's the vast 
you know, majority of it is just the logistics that it takes to to get into the battle and to get out of the battle. Yeah. To find the enemy, fix the enemy, destroying the enemy, easy. Getting there, nearly impossible. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience in working on planning ops and in planning the logistics out, but I didn't appreciate how organized the, mili- the U.S. military was. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I, I didn't appreciate that either. I didn't understand how amazing and smooth running this machine was that we've created over the 200 plus years that we've had our military. Yeah. How many times when you were in the military were you like, this is just administrative BS, this is crap, like, yeah, all the time, dude. Yeah. And now after being in Ukraine, I'm like, you know, maybe I would take just a little bit of that back to have a semblance of organization. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like that red tape exists because it yeah. saves lives and it makes sure that once the dudes actually get to where they're going. Well, sometimes it does. Sometimes it hinders. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a time for both. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on what we're talking about. Yeah. But in general, right, like why do we have all these things in place? Like like we could talk about boats specifically. Like why do you have all these regulations and rules? Like every boat must have this sort of thing on the boat and must have a backup thing for this or you must have that. Why? Because when you're in the middle of the black sea at three in the morning and shit starts sinking, (laughs) you need those backup tools. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't have, I didn't have one unsultry boat mission out there. It was always a breakdown, someone running out of fuel and just generally being stuck in the ocean or, <laughs> or stuck in the ocean, unable to move or stuck in the ocean sinking. One, one of those three things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a real gut check moment for sure. Dude, we should, uh, let's do the Reddit thing with the video and all those comments that are like, these guys are so professional. What? What is this? Remember at Dan's funeral, dude, I was showing you the, the Reddit thing with all the comments and they were they were all like these guys are so professional, but like the entire operation was just a mess. Do you want to pull this up? Yeah, it, yeah. Pull, go to Reddit. And what do you? It's it's like Ken Ken Re, like K E N K H E N R H E E. Two words. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which uh, one? Yeah, it's that. It, play the video, and then uh, we'll go through the comments. Oh, I'm gonna have to blur some of this out. Take another look, bro. You good to drive? You lightheaded? Oh, that's me. Is that just yeah. that, brother? Yeah. 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 Can you think okay? Drive? No, I'm good. Can you think okay? My head's fine. All right, All right brother. We're not visual. Good. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. good, guys. All right. I, it just fucking hurts. I got it. <laughs> Can you see it? It's not deep, man. It's skin. Yeah. Just still dripping? That's just no, a cut, no, brother. Oh, we're going to get a fucking picture of this. Yeah, dude. I will. I will. Oh, fuck, dude. That's <laughs> my fucking neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good. Come on, let's go. Get in the fucking vehicle. <laughs> that was Kevin grabbing his rifle. That was Kevin no. trying to grab his rifle. <laughs> Kevin, get it, get it, get it. Hurry up. Let's go, let's go. Hold it, just hold it. Go, right, go, right, go, right, go, 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 go. Fuck. Fuck, easy, easy. You're good, man. All right. All right, I got left, you get right. Let's I go, let's go. I don't have a fucking rifle. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't have a rifle. <laughs> I got left, you get right, I don't have a rifle. Oh, shit. <laughs> that shit's classic. He's good, he's good, he's good. 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 He
Hey, tires might be bad. Tires might be bad. Tires definitely were bad. Oh yeah, the tires were bad. <laughs> so I'm I'm behind you guys. And just watching your vehicle limp along, dude, is bad. Someone look at our six. Do we yeah, see yeah. anything coming? Or? Yeah, yeah, we got him. We got the pickup. Okay. Yeah, we got him. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> okay. okay, maintain the speed. Alright, keep going, keep going. It's coming. Fuck it, coming fire. Incoming fire. Incoming fire. Come on. 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 He's not kidding. No, he's right. We should have right. been there. It's, a, it's incredible that we were. That we yeah, we made it out of that. You hear the tires slapping the the wheel well. Tell us, tell us, tell us. We're done. Hold on, one second. Give me ten seconds. I was trying to get the engine restarted. All right, get rid of bump. Get rid of bump. Yeah. And then we were like, yeah, yeah right. that thing was done, dude. Yeah. Yeah, this vehicle's dead. Okay, so yeah. quick context for those watching that—that that was me driving. Um, we, I won't get into the whole thing about the op, but we were supposed to just be doing a recce, and it turned out not to be a recce. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know out, what it was. They, they had that z building zeroed like, yeah. perfectly, and we were standing right at the back of that van. We got a picture of it. Yeah, we're standing behind that van. And then we went to go talk to somebody. No, what happened, dude, we're all behind the van. Kevin goes to take a piss. And then he goes, he goes, man, I'm bored. Let's go talk crap to Lou. And we're all like, oh, we love when Kevin talks crap to Lou. And he's he's a Ukrainian. That's always, he's got all these one-liners. And uh, and so we go, we all go walk over before Kevin even initiates the, the shenanigans. Just... The entire roof caves in. The back of the vehicle explodes. Freaking, it was just a mess. Just an art, one artillery round. That was it. Right, in, right in the middle of where we all were. Yeah. Um. And and it was pretty much. Oh, and I had Ryan Macbeth on earlier this week, and he says he does. He can do um impact impact assessment, and I and I forgot to have him look at that. Uh, so for everyone listening, I want to have him do an impact assessment on that because you look at it, it was most likely 120 that hit, but because it must have had a delay or the ground was soft or something, but it sunk in like four feet into the ground, then exploded. Yeah. That is the one thing that saved us. Why we're still alive right now. Yeah, the only reason. We, well, we walked away from there because if we were standing right there, we wouldn't yeah. be, we wouldn't be alive right now, but we walked away and because that round sunk in and then exploded, we didn't catch any shrapnel. We didn't catch any... Yep. You know any of the big shockwave of the stuff? I, mean, I still felt it in my chest. Yeah. Oh but, no, it rung my bell, dude. I, I yeah. took a big nap after that. Yeah. Like it, I was so drained and spent, even though we didn't really do anything. I was like, "What is going on?" Yeah, that thing was right on top of us. But I, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago. Like, I didn't have my helmet, and <laughs> you know, there's a whole story about the helmet thing. I won't get into. That was the Polly Walnuts Jesus. moment, dude. I didn't have a helmet and the building fell on my head basically. And yeah. I, I, we're running out of the building. That was the most slow motion moment of my life. That dude. was Indiana Jones, dude, in real life. <laughs> the entire building coming down and you're just like running for the exit. Yeah. <laughs> it was like Indiana Jones temple run. Just like it was dude. And so as we're running out, I'm, 
I know we're sprinting. Yeah. Like I know that's what we were doing, but I was like, <laughs> like it Dude. felt like it was in tenth time speed or something. Yeah. And then as we're running, something smashes my head, and I'm like, ah. Oh. And so I'm like, oh shit. And so we're running out and there's all those previous impact craters. And so we jump in one of those, it's like a modified foxhole, yeah. right? And we're in there and we're like, you okay? Are you okay? And there I'm was like, four of you guys in your little impact crater, dude. It was yeah. you, Ken, Lou, and Chris. And then it was me and Kevin and mine. It was so funny, dude. And so, and I'm like, you okay? You okay? And I, and I look and my hand, I can't even see my hand. It's just red, yeah. just drenched blood. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and they're like, um, hey, we got to get out of here. Like, who's got the keys? And I was like, I got the keys. And so this logic didn't make sense at the time, but it was like, I was like, I got the keys. I'll go get the van. So as I'm blood is dumping out of my head, I'm running back into the building. I get the van turned on and the back end of the van is just destroyed. Yeah. Gone. And so I'm basically driving like this, like kind of low rider thing out the deal. Who went and got the truck? Uh, Is it Yuri? Yeah, it was Yuri. Okay. So he, right. Yuri runs and gets the truck. So we pull the vehicles out and I know I'm a little phased right now at the moment. So, um, when I'm running in, Kevin's like, get my rifle. And so, <laughs> but when, I'm thinking, dude, they zeroed the building and they shit on us and they got us perfectly. Yeah. Any second now, fire for effect is coming. Yeah, yeah. So I'm running into a building I know in my mind is about to completely just be vaporized. Yeah. And so I'm like, any second now. So as I'm running in, I completely forget he asked me to get the rifle like four seconds ago. He said, get the rifle. <laughs> completely forget about it just get in the van and I'm like, fuck the rifle. And so, um, I pull out and then he's like, I got to go get my rifle. And I'm like, dude, let's get the fuck out of here. We'll come back for it. And he's like, no. So he runs to go get the rifle. So that's the part of the beginning of the video where you see, we're just sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're waiting for follow on rounds that for some reason they didn't follow it up. Never happened. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so from my perspective, dude, we, we run out of the building. I go run and jump in the shell hole. I see Yuri take cover next to the building that just got hit. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea, but I'm going to, the better idea in my opinion is to run out in this open field and lay in this tiny shell hole. And so that's what I did. And Kevin jumped in with me, dude. And I'm looking at myself. My entire body is still exposed to the open ground. And I'm like, just like trying to contort like my vital organs into this tiny shell hole. And Kevin's trying to do the same thing. And he goes, and I just start laughing. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And Kevin, he goes, I, dude, I, he's got like all kinds of debris. He's got all kinds of debris in his eyes. He's like, I, I can't see. Am I hit? Am I hit? And I, I look at him I'm like, oh, fuck, Kevin, your eyes are gone. And he was like, he was like, what? He's like, but uh, and then I was like, no, 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 you're fine. He's like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I saw Paul get hit, and so we yell over like, Paul, you okay? You're like, yeah, just bleeding, you know, whatever. And then we're like, we need to, we need to get the vehicles and get out of here. You made, and you made me sound like a little bitch. Yeah, I'm just bleeding. Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry, Paul. <laughs> it was a Polly Walnuts moment with the helmet thing, dude. I had to to get it in, but uh, yeah. So you go run back and get the car, and Yuri gets the truck, dude. The other and me and Kevin are just laughing hysterically because <laughs> the whole situation is just a mess, dude. Like literally for a good like four or five seconds until you guys pull out with the vehicle, we're just dying. Like can't even function laughing so hard. And uh the the vehicles pull out. 
I hop in with with Yuri and Lou. And when Kevin goes back to get his rifle, Yuri, he looks around, he goes, blat, and then runs back. Yuri forgot his rifle, too. Oh, shit. Yeah, so Yuri ran back, grabbed his, and, and got back in the vehicle before Kevin could find his. Because Kevin's was, like, right on the impact yeah. of, of where the artillery round was. It survived, but no one knows where it went. Um, But, yeah, we started pulling out of there, dude. Lou and Yuri were just like screaming at each other in Ukrainian. Like they were so mad about the whole situation and like blaming each other and stuff. It was just like hilarious to listen to. And so I keep laughing. Like I can't stop laughing, dude, because it's so funny. And and I pull out my phone to take pictures because I just can't forget this moment. And and Lou, he turns around, he's like, This is not funny, mate. This is very serious shit, Suka. <laughs> I was like and I captured this photo right at the perfect moment. That's that like quintessential yeah. meme photo of Lou. Uh where we use we just put all of his one liners on there. But anyways, this video got posted on Reddit and the comments, dude, are so funny. What it yeah, have you seen so many? Some of them? Yeah. So it's like, they're like talking about how, you know, we had to go mess around with Lou. Hold up, hold up. Uh, no, let's yeah, keep going, yeah. Yeah, just keep going. There's some that, that talk about, they're like, oh, these these guys are so professional. Yeah, here it is. Being able to come to terms that you might just die at any second. Being able to take someone else's life and the ability to manually call on adrenaline when you need it, in my opinion, makes the best. Like, like that was not at all what was going on. How'd they get know I was a Marine? Yeah, I don't. Probably said something in the video. Huh. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Lou, for your stupidity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's yeah. yeah. Ken is talking about incoming dude. Look fire. at my fucking neck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I I was I thought it was hilarious because I was like, dude, I can't believe because we had it. We sat there for a few seconds while Kevin was getting his rifle, and I didn't know what was going on. I knew there was a lot of blood, and then, um, yeah, I guess we can say names. But Chris was like, "Don't yeah. worry, that's just a cut, brother." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like. And then I see in the mirror, because I know I can see it, but then I see in the mirror, my whole side of my head is yeah. just blood. And then and you're like, like Ooh. oh, dude, my whole neck. Yeah. Like, these guys are hard as nails. and like, dude, we're just out there. He probably knew minor head injuries just tend to bleed a lot. Yeah. Like, you were thinking of that right no. at that very moment. <laughs> like, like, we're so damn proficient, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to lie. I'd be saying the same thing. He's got some serious street cred now. <laughs> Always impressed at how these guys remain calm and get shit done under fire like this. <laughs> Lou is screaming at Yuri in the front seat like it is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody remained calm. No. Oh, man. Mm, you you either learn to put your emotions aside or die. It's not that simple. You can definitely put your emotions aside and still die. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It comes natural to some, it seems. Huh. Yeah, there's a bunch of comments. I, if you looked at the top, it was like 21,000 thumbs ups or something. What arrows up at the top there? Yeah. I didn't know there was this whole thing on there. I knew Ken had a video about it, but. 
Yeah, it's just funny though, dude. Like to to see what people think and how it actually was. Like it was yeah. just to me, the situation was artillery round landed. Me and Kev laughed in the artillery <laughs> hole, and then Lou and Yuri were freaking out at each other, and then we drove away. Yeah, and, and these people were like, "These guys, you know, they're so proficient." And I'm like, <laughs> ah, "You know, remaining it, calm under fire." Yeah, it wasn't exactly calm. It was just nothing you could do about it. I it thought was it was funny. funny though. I was laughing yeah. too. I was like, "Dude, I can't believe my neck is like covered in this much blood." Yeah. What is? What did you change it to there, John? Controversial. Controversial. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, yeah. Let's see. A lot of real men doing God's work. Okay. Okay. I sure hope so. These guys are absolute heroes, but where, where the, the fuck, fuck are they? <laughs> yeah, Paul. Where, you always had an issue with that man with the dang helmet. Uh, We'll ad- we'll address it. Okay, um, okay. Because uh, at this point, everyone's thinking I'm an idiot, which I guess I was. But yeah. All right. So I'm running navigation yeah. and point for the team, right? Um, they given me this like World War II area bell helmet, and um, I don't have the ops core stuff like you guys did, so I'm just taking what they give me. But you're clearing stairwells in these buildings, and all you can hear is. <sighs> Like, all you can hear is your breathing inside this helmet. Yeah. Because the helmet's, like, covering your ears, so all you hear is your own breath. I can't I can't yeah. deal with that, man. I mean, it's I got to hear what's going on in the building. If we're walking down the street, I got to be able to hear stuff. And if all I hear is my own breath, to me, that's more dangerous than not having the helmet on. So... Yeah, in that situation, for sure. Yeah, so, I I mean, I should have hung on to the one they gave me for when we were doing land warfare stuff, because then it's not as important to hear, you know, close up or around a corner, because yeah. there are no corners. But um, at that point, I had ditched the helmet, and I kept saying to them, like, guys, because of my job, I need to be able to, you know, hear what I'm doing, but I got to have one of these. And they were giving away ops cores to dudes yeah. that ha- had just shown up. And that was the problem that I had. I was like, let's allocate the gear to the guys that have like been here already. Yeah, yeah. We've had time in combat. The like, ones who have prestige. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've hit a couple prestiges at this yeah, point. So yeah. like, where's my helmet, man? And so I see dudes that never left Kiev with helmets. And I'm like, come on, man. So I'm talking to the, what's his name that did, you know, gear for the Legion. I was like, can I please get a helmet? Like, yeah. give me a, a fast cut helmet so I can do my job properly. But yeah, so I should have just worn whatever they gave me, but yeah, that's why I didn't have a helmet on that day. What's this one about the Army Ranger? I used to be impressed until I saw an Army Ranger lose his stuff at a party once. Hmm. Another was on a bunch of meds and loved his rifle way too much. Okay. Ooh, that got dark, huh? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sorry that was your experience with Army Rangers, I guess, but... Go back up a little bit, John. Yeah. Uh, your standard ranger is pretty much the lowest tier of SF in the U.S. arsenal. Not trying to disparage, just you probably shouldn't hold a ranger to CAG or a raider or whatever to the same light. You uh, know, th- I think that's... I'll, I'll jump in here. I, I know you're going to come to the defense of the rangers, but I will too, because you, you mentioned this earlier, like it's a different mission. And someone yeah. that would comment like that doesn't understand that the missions are different, but the skill set, the amount of readiness and fitness and uh, preparedness is just the same, I would say. Yeah, you know, it's a different mission set, first of all. Like, they wouldn't send in Navy SEALs or Force Recon to seize an airfield 
that's like only a ranger mission yeah uh and lowest tier of sf that doesn't even make sense there's not like tiers to this right tier one is a a financial like budget designation it's not you don't you don't say like these guys are tier one and these guys are tier two like that's when they say tier one operator that just means they get allocated all the funding yeah, I think that's a discrepancy, not a discrepancy, but a misunderstanding by the, yeah. the public's yeah. viewpoint of like what is tier one or tier two. And with even within tier two, you have varying levels of skill sets and things. Within tier one, you have varying levels of skill sets. Yeah. And, and it's not, yeah. You know, Rangers have a tier one force as well. So this person, we're on both tiers. So what this person doesn't know what they're talking about, first of all. Second of all, they say lowest tier of SF, right? So that also leads me to believe they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Because SF is Green Berets, Special Forces. Yeah, that's a specific element. And there's, of... no, there's no tier of, spe- like, Rangers aren't a tier of Special Forces. So that's, it's just a dumb, dumb comment. And he goes, not trying to disparage, which is exactly what he did. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, you, you can... You can hold everyone to the same light. Rangers, CAG, Raiders, PJ, hold them, hold everyone to the same light. You know, there's, uh, well, again, it's, it's just a different skill set, like a para, um, I almost said paratrooper, uh, pararescue, pararescue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a pararescue man is highly, highly skilled in medical, yeah. uh, combat, combat medical aid. Right. And so, uh, if you take a ranger medic versus a pararescue man, like, I don't know. Could could you argue that the pararescue men is more highly medically trained? Mm, probably not. We the Ranger Medical that's was like a serious thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like we had no preventable combat deaths at one point. But are they given as much training? Like I think pararescue men uh, go through two years of no. But pararescue men, it's not only medical. It's like extractions and and how to get bodies out and stuff. Yeah, and. Uh, I don't know. I'm not qualified to talk on. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't whatsoever. trying to measure. Yeah. I measure knobs or. <laughs> I will say that the Ranger medics are freaking legends. If you haven't read about them, dude, we like my old team leader. Um, his name's Ryan Davis. He got three of his limbs blown off. Three full limbs blown off. Saved, and they kept him alive for multiple hours on the ground doing procedures that had never been done before in combat. Like that it changed from what I hear, it changed like a ton of misconceptions in in the military medical community about, about like pushing drugs or the importance of, of pushing drugs over, you know, refilling the, the bucket of like blood and fluids and stuff like that. And they shifted it towards like get people blood get people the fluids they need on the ground over these, you know, meds that are only so effective. Yeah, because you can pump someone full of ketamine, but if they're dying of blood loss, well, it's, what's the benefit? You know, it, there's like other meds too. It's like, you know, to regulate blood pressure. I'm not qualified at all to talk about this, but this is my understanding. Like all the all these different meds that they have that perform certain functions on the ground – people were starting to push them as like important to get to patients. And it just comes down to like refilling the fluids, getting blood to the patient, like, you know, stopping the bleeding. 
that that's my extremely caveman version of this because yeah. I am zero negative one million percent qualified to talk about this kind of stuff. That's oh, all right. Yeah. I mean, you, you're speaking from what you do know. Yeah. Well, I got to say, man, um, you and all the Rangers I worked with, I was impressed by the resiliency you guys demonstrated, your courage, your skill set, um, your level of preparedness to just get into any fight, regardless of the lack of equipment we had or regardless of how poorly the logistics went off. Mm-hmm. Like You guys exemplified true courage, true uh, warrior spirit. Thanks, man. I and appreciate it. It was my that. first time yeah. working with Rangers, and I was impressed. So Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that we've become friends. And Yeah. And I, I'm glad I, you know, I brought some, uh, some pride to the Ranger Regiment, man. Yeah, you definitely did. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I'm glad that you had that turnaround point, that, that moment. I didn't <laughs> know that story with Greg where you, yeah. you made some decisions, and I'm, I'm glad you made the right ones. Thank you, thank you. And, and thank you, man, for, for doing the same. And uh, you brought great, great credit upon the Marine Corps as well. So Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. It means a lot. Well, we've been going for a while, and uh, we got some camping and shooting to do. Yeah, let's go shoot some so, targets, man. Let's do it, brother. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, man. See you. See you, everyone. Bye.